0: there, everyone, and welcome to the Doctor Who show, where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. I'm your host, Rob Irwin, and this is episode number four. How are you? I've held off recording this until Sunday, actually, literally the day we go out, because it had been telegraphed that the new companion would be announced overnight, Australian time at least, and indeed, that's come to pass. So, welcome, Pearl Mackey, and her n- name is Bill. <laughs> Uh, According to the Radio Times, she's an actor and singer from Brixton in South London. She's a relative newcomer to TV, but has done plenty of theatre work and is described as a star in the making by the British theatre guide. There's something that's on everyone's coffee table. And is currently appearing in the acclaimed national theatre production of The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Night Time. Not one I'm familiar with, but it sounds very interesting. Um, the article also mentions she'll start after the Christmas special, so she'll start in Series 10 itself. Why not that confuse some people later in the year? Here, where's that companion they announced earlier this year? She's She's not in this. You know, uh, I imagine that's what'll happen. Anyway... Moving on, because I like to keep these intros nice and tight, I don't know if you've ever listened to the Proctor Who podcast. We actually have one of its team members in the form of Bob Fleming here on the show every month as one half of the Letter Lords, but have you listened to Proctor Who itself? Well, if you haven't, about a year ago, maybe more actually, I was listening to an episode of the show and one of the guys on the team, Mark Atkinson, said he'd written a Doctor Who story and he'd written it over many years and he'd actually adapted it into audio and he'd play some audio episodes of it at the end of Proctor Who podcast for, you know, some time to come. Well, that series of episodes I only finished just recently, yeah, there's about a year or more's worth, and is just starting to be released now as what he's calling box sets on the Proctor Who podcast feed. So if you've not listened to it before, it's uh, coming out in chunks, uh, if I can put it that way. And I thought it might be fun to give Mark a call now and, you know, talk about making the audio and perhaps why he wrote the book in the first place. And what else can I ask him? Oh, maybe about the, the spiritual side of... The uh, story, because, oh yes, this is not just any run-of-the-mill Doctor Who run-around. This actually has some depth to it. So, let's give him a call, eh? Um, Where's his number? Oh, here it is. Hello? Hey, Mark. It's Rob Irwin here from the Doctor Who show. How are you? Hello, Rob. I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm not too bad at all. I was just telling our listeners about your Doctor Who audio, Eternal. Hmm. But perhaps before we get to that, because I think we're going to talk a lot about that, could we maybe get some background on, on you? For people who haven't heard you before on the proctor who podcast, uh, tell us a little about that, maybe.
1: Well, the prog to who podcast, we've been going uh, about a year and a half now, actually, maybe a little bit more, uh, with myself and Bob Fleming, and, uh, who was also on the Doctor Who show, and Craig Stimson. And uh, we get together every two weeks at the minute, and at the minute we're uh, looking at classic adventures and we play a couple of, uh, well, three songs during each podcast from the, well, usually the prog rock genre, Uh, but sometimes uh, Craig tends to slip into other areas of music, and so does Bob, but it's all part of the fun, really. We just hopefully play three great songs, that's the idea. I was going to say Kylie Minogue. (laughs) No, no, that was the lowest point of the whole podcast (laughs) since we began. (laughs) It was fun, though. That was a fun episode to do with Craig. It was great. It was. How long have you liked prog rock? Um well I've been a musician all my life. Uh I started when I was singing when I was like 14. I've been gigging live since I was 16. I do it full time as a musician. So I've always enjoyed music. Prog rock. I suppose I got into more into as I got older. I mean I I like, I like all sorts of stuff. I'm not limited to prog rock. I like all sorts. As long as it's a good song I like it. Uh but prog rock I suppose yeah last sort of maybe I don't know 15 or 16 years I've I've got more into that sort of that side really. Uh, but as I say, I like all sorts of different stuff.
0: I always get a little hazy on what makes a prog song. Is it is it more to do with
1: the skill of the musicians? That always seems to be a bit of a constant <laughs> in prog. Well, I suppose it's stuff that maybe goes somewhere that you're not expecting it to go. I think the, the definition now, it's, it's such it covers such a massive spectrum of music, really. Uh, I mean, I, I, that's what I like about music in general, is that a lot of different genres are fused together now. And... Mm. Uh, you know, certainly with the sort of stuff that I write, it's it's not technically crazy or anything like that. It's more melodic, really. because there's a lot I like a lot of melodic uh, uh, prog, really, more than the sort of zany stuff. Although I do love the zany stuff as well, depending on what mood I'm in, really. Depends on where I'm driving to and what what sort of drive I've got. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it just tends to get classed as stuff that's a little bit more out there, I suppose. A bit like Doctor Who, really. There's the link.
0: Exactly. Yeah, I, I got to say, I, I enjoy listening to to Prog Who because I, I enjoy you know hearing guys chat about Doctor Who guys guys and girls you know, but uh, breaking up the the chat with with a song, um, you do it, and another podcast I listen to, which is a history podcast of all things, they do it as well. Yeah, they throw in songs from time to time, and I think it just breaks the chat up a bit, and it, it's it's really good. You know, I wish I wish more podcasts did it actually.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it was an idea I had uh, because uh, I listen to a lot of Doctor Who podcasts, and I listen to quite uh, what well, one or two prog rock co- uh, podcasts, and I wanted to sort of combine the two two things together. Really, I thought it worked really well. Just as you just have a break uh mm-hmm. from the from the chatting and just do you know, a different color because it also gives it a sort of radio show feel in a way and uh you know i, I think it works really well myself <laughs> but Then i would wouldn't know <laughs>
0: <laughs> no i think it, i think it works very well in fact we we had to poach bob to do one of our segments
1: you know i like yeah. that, that much <laughs> yeah he's great he's, him and jim together are great it's really really interesting part i think that all right then eternal oh gosh a time
0: traveling spiritual adventure. Mm. Now, I promise neither of us will go into spoiler territory, and if we do, I'll, I'll edit it out before this goes out. Um, but for those who haven't heard it, what would you say? What is a time traveling spiritual adventure to begin oh, with? Gosh. Um,
1: pff, dear me, where do I start with this one? Um, uh, <laughs> uh, it's a it's a story about a man that's searching for answers, really, and mm. um, the doctor comes along. And if there's any, if the doctor was real. There's only one person in the universe that could show you the the answers to everything. Because the Doctor would know, wouldn't he? It'd be the Doctor. So I I had this idea in the late 90s, actually. I had this idea of the Doctor coming along and and answering this guy's question. Then it was only like in maybe 2005, 2004 time, maybe, I suddenly got this whole sort of... I had like 15 major uh, plot points or chapter endings, if you like, that all sort of descended on me at once. And I thought, wow, I, that's what I need to write. So I basically started writing in, in uh, like, September 2006. I started off uh, with How It Begins with with Martin and the Doctor in the Church, had, discussing sort of theology, if you like, mm-hmm. and took it from there, really. And I always had these plot points that I was going to get to all the way through. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted an adventure that, that went where no other Doctor's story had ever gone, really, and tread it as if it was... R- as if it was real and the doctor was real and you know, if you had the chance to go back in time and find out the you know the beginning of mankind what was above the mountain in mount sinai and and, mm-hmm. and what jesus really said really was quite a, an idea that i wanted to go for and see where it took it, it me really yeah
0: yeah so it certainly does go further i think than any other doctor who story anyone listening to this will have heard um so it sat around for what, about five or six years, just percolating in in your head like a like a coffee, I
1: guess. Yeah, it was. I mean, McGann was the doctor when to begin with in my head. How it was going to start with with Matt and the doctor meeting the churchyard and just discussing stuff really and and talking about about religion and God and the truth about existence and all that sort of idea it was just how it began. But it was only when I had these flashes of ideas of oh, actually, then I could go back in time. I could go to there. I could go to there. And all these different points that I wanted to go to, like future, you know, astral flight and all these different ideas, they all sort of came at once. And after that, I sort of wrote it down in like bulletin points on my hard drive. And then just over like seven years, it took me to write. It's just slowly tick off all these points until I I did them all, really. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Now, it's no spoiler for me to say that the story starts with the Tenant Doctor... Mm. And and eventually the Matt Smith doctor turns up as well. But you've mentioned Paul McGann, and I know you love Paul McGann. I do. Yeah. So wh- why the change from from maybe having Paul McGann in it?
1: Well, by then by the time I started writing in two thousand and six, obviously Tennant had taken over as the Doctor, and because he was the current Doctor, it, it made the most sense to sort of use him. And I'd got a quite a, a good grasp on his character as well and how he how he speaks and things like that. And it, it, it just made more sense to to uh, make it The Tenant Doctor when I was when I was writing. It's funny because when it gets to... You can tell the chapters that happen when it gets to 2010, the real time of me writing it, because that's when it becomes Matt's Doctor, who comes in it around, I think, Chapter 27, I think is the first time Matt's cha- the Doctor comes on. And that's because that's when I, I was writing it at that time in 2010. So it's funny that the, the story goes runs paral- parallel along with them times that I wrote it, you know. But, yeah, I just wanted to use Tennant to begin with because he was the current doctor, and I found him really easy to write. Actually,
0: it's it's interesting though because the more I think about it, the more I think of that conversation, the the initial conversation in the churchyard with McGann, how that might have played out as well. Because he's a he's a he's a bit softer. He's you know, I think Tennant's more like you know, come on, Marty, let's let's do this. You know, whereas McGann, it would be maybe a softer touch.
1: Yeah. Yeah, they would. Have, I suppose it would have been different, really, and different with each doctor. Really, I mean, Pertwee me was my doctor as a child, so but I never had the idea to do it with him, really. I mean, he does pop up at some point, no spoilers, um, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, you know, it was always. It, it would have been different with McGann, but but I suppose once I decided that it was Tennant's doctor, it, it sort of went from there and took on a life of its own, really.
0: <laughs> mm. Now, did you always write it with the idea of making the audio? No
1: no all I, I I wrote the whole thing it's purely for my own enjoyment um it was something that I, I've always wanted to do. everyone says they've got a novel inside them and this was mine really and because it was in my head and everything happened in my head I wanted to write it down and, and so I definitely just wrote it for my own enjoyment to begin with. I put it online in a couple of places, not anything major. and I I printed it out and I'd lent it to my people like my mum and a few friends and people that read it really enjoyed it. and so But it never really got any exposure because I couldn't promote it in a big way because obviously it featured the Doctor and the Doctor's copyright and anything like that so I couldn't really do much with it. And then it was only when we were, we were doing Proctor who we started doing it. And then I sort of last year, about this time last year, actually, I had a. I suddenly thought, I've always, I've always wanted to do an audio adaption because I wanted to hear it come to life. Yeah. Um, and then I suddenly thought, oh, actually, I could do that, and then put it on the end of the podcast. And I put it to Bob and Craig and see what they thought. I thought that was a that was a great idea. So. So, yeah, that's what I did. So it took me a long time to do. I should by the t- I should have been recording a new solo album last year, but instead, I you do come in, <laughs> in the studio, I'd, seriously as well, it took me so much longer than I thought it was going to. Because once I started it, I wanted to do it properly, if you know what I mean, and you know, add the music and get it right, really. And obviously, there's a lot of hours. I think it's about, it's about maybe 12, 13 hours in total, the whole thing. So, yeah, it took, took quite a while to do.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it's, a, it's, it's quite an epic thing when, when you listen to it. And for people who haven't listened to it, we'll give you some details at the end on how you can listen to it in an easier way than listening to a, a year's worth of Proctor Who. Not that that's not a worthy thing to do, <laughs> I've got <gotta> to say. <laughs> but uh, there will be an easier way to do it, and we'll get to that. And I also want to get to the music aspect as well. But yeah. just just sticking with these, these questions in, in some sort of coherent order in my head, I guess it's a very personal sort of tale. Um, Yes, definitely. I mean, I think I twigged onto that very early on when Marty was picking dead skin off his fingers, and I thought, oh... This guy's either on junk or he's a guitarist, you know, it's one <laughs> or the other. And, and knowing you played guitar, it's the yeah. to fall into place there. I think I might have even said something to you online at the time. Right. I think you did, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. Um, did you have any sort of reservations about putting yourself out there like that? Or, or because it was, you were writing just for yourself, you, you just didn't care when you were writing it?
1: Yeah, that's that's all it was. I just didn't care when writing it. I'm used to, because I'm a songwriter, I'm used to burying my soul. That's, that's what songwriters do. I'm used to channelling that through and being personal with lyrics and everything like I've always been like that. So it doesn't it doesn't bother me at all to, to sort of expose myself like that if you pardon the expression. But um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I always wanted it to be personal. I had to relate to it totally. Everything that happens to Martin, all the different beliefs that he's subjected to, they're all things that have gone through my head. And that's why the story flips and turns all over the place because it's all these contradictory ideas. That, that mm. about belief and about the universe and about everything that I've always thought about, and I wanted to sort of put it in an adventure form, really. So, so no, it wasn't always a very personal story, and as you know yourself, it gets really personal, especially towards the end. Yeah, uh, of course. But, but that was always always going to happen, you know.
0: Yeah. It's um, personal is the A way I can sort of describe it. You know, when when you listen to it, I mean, at the start of each chapter, you have um, some sort of quote And they're often from a a spiritual book. And it makes me think, these books, are they sitting on your bookshelf at home? You know, some of them sound like self-help books. Some of them sound like uh, philosophy books, perhaps. Um, Are these books you've owned and pulled things out of, perhaps?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what it was, really. I've done a lot of reading in my life, a lot of searching as well. You know, I went on a spiritual quest sort of mid-90s, really. I really, really sort of got into that wanting to find out answers, you know what I mean? And so I looked into loads of different religions, really, including Christianity, including Buddhism, and and a lot of New Age books, and a lot of books on theology and things like that really engrossed myself in it. And also a lot of books on, you know, alien intervention, ancient aliens, this sort of idea about the secrets of mankind's past and what really came down from the heavens in all the holy books, not just the Bible, but in the loads of, you know, holy books. um, Mm. And all that was fascinating for me. And so, what I wanted to do with Eternal was was combine all them things together. So you had them all in one one book, really, and and explore them and tried to see what it would be like if that was true.
0: And and I think that's a big part of the appeal. Um, you know, for for me as an atheist, you yeah. know, i I can say to the listeners out there that this isn't trying to tell you a story and then at the end say. And that's why you should be a Methodist. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Or, yeah. You know. Well, that's why you should be a Buddhist or yeah, whatever. Yeah. There's no sort of one message in there, and you can listen to it and take out what what you want to take out. You know. Yeah, that's, that's
1: just... good. I'm glad that that happens because I, I didn't want. You know, I, could, I think the the big fear with writing things like this is that people think you're on an agenda mm. to sell you whatever it is. Especially if you say I'm writing a story about going back in time and meeting Jesus, people think oh he's a Christian he's trying to push this on me, but I'm yeah. not. And I'm not throughout the throughout the thing. It's not trying to do that. It's trying to explore them avenues and saying what if this, what if that, what if the other. You know, there's all as you said. There's all sorts of different beliefs in there, and it's just trying to explore them all. Really, I'm not trying to push any push any agenda on anybody at all. The whole point is to is about the questions, and I'm hoping that it you know if it makes you think about it yourself, then that's done its job, has not it? You know, that's what I set out to do, really.
0: Exactly, exactly. And there's so many twists and turns, and there are some genuine Doctor Who moments in it as well.
1: Mm, You know, that
0: could come from, you know, any sort of Doctor Who story. Yeah. um, Oh, yeah, look, I, I
1: really, really enjoyed listening to it, I've got to say. Thank you. thank yeah. you. I'm glad you stuck with it. I think the easiest thing is to give up on it. I think I think that's the, the problem with the, f- the first four chapters are quite talky on purpose. It's Martin and the Doctor in a graveyard talking mm. is the first four chapters. And I think if you're not in the mindset to stick with it, then people might give up on that. That's the only problem I've found with it. But I think that once you get to chapter five is when it, the time travel element sticks in, kicks in, that I think if people have gone that far with it, by the end of chapter five, hopefully they're on board. And from then on, I think they should... You know, beyond the voyage, I just, I just hope that people stick to it till the end of chapter
0: five. <laughs> oh, I, I certainly stuck to it and and really, really enjoyed
1: it. Thank you.
0: Now, is there any part of Marty that springs from you? I mean, we've, we've talked how it's a personal sort of story. Is there any part that springs from you that, but then maybe went off on its own path as you were writing it? You started having him do and say things
1: that maybe weren't so much you. Uh, I, I think I was quite true to to keeping that sort of personal element to Marty all the way through, it's how maybe I'd react to certain situations. He probably cries a bit more than I do. <laughs> I, was, I was going to bring that up if you didn't. <laughs> yeah. I thought you might. have mentioned it before. He just <laughs> get very emotional about stuff. Uh, but, you know, it's it's big things that are happening to him, I suppose. Uh, you know, and the thing is, to begin with, is Nan's died. That's how you meet the character at the beginning, mm. is that Martin's Nan's died. So he's just been to a funeral. He's sat in the churchyard, questioning faith, questioning life and God and everything. And that's when the doctor turns up. And offers to take him back in time to find out what really happened about stuff. So, so no, I mean, I, I tried to keep him how I'd react to stuff in a way. But yeah, maybe the I maybe went over, a little bit over the top with the crying, maybe in parts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he is with the emo doctor after all. Yeah,
2: that's
0: true, that's true, that's my excuse as well (laughs) (laughs) Now, uh, I said we'd get to this Production-wise, the sound of Eternal is is very good It's very professional, as we'd expect from a muso You know, as is the use of music And sometimes even, you know, sound effects, special effects Mm. We can talk all about that in a moment But one theme, one musical theme that comes up all the time At least at the start of each piece Is Murray Gold's The Dream of a Normal Death Yes now, to me, that's the main eternal theme. When I hear that now, I, I'm not so much thinking of <laughs> Murray yes. Gold in Season 3, or Series 3, I think it was from. Um, but now, to me, it's the eternal theme. Yeah. So <laughs> d- does that piece of music have any significance outside of just being a, a
1: really nice piece of music? Not really. Yeah, just a l- lovely piece of music. I, I searched uh, all the way through Murray Gold's stuff and through different soundtracks that I've got as well just to find music that... F- fit with the you know could be used in the background and that one leapt out at me and as soon as i heard that that little section that i clipped out of it that we i use as eternal's main theme it just leapt out at me i thought wow that's the theme there straight away i mean there was no debate about it that was it you know it's funny now when i hear the episode that it's on i can't remember which episode it's in but um i heard it come in kick in and i'm like you i can only hear the eternal theme now that i've used it so much but no, it wasn't anything particular. It just leapt out at me when I was, when I was going through stuff to try and find music for the, for the story. That just leapt out at me as, as the one to use for the theme.
0: And how about the, the, the sound effects you've come across or, or other sort of vi- um, visual, what am I talking about, audio cues? Yeah. Uh, have, have they just been things you've picked up along the way and thought, oh, that sounds good, I'll wheedle that in somewhere?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a moment with the mothership above the mountain where the horn... Uh, is used that big sort of klaxon like oh, horn, which, yeah, 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 which I love that, and that's actually from the the War of the Worlds film from uh, you know Steven Spielberg's, I think it was two thousand five with Tom Cruise. It's it's that sound effect basically. I was just looking on uh, like you do on YouTube uh, for sound effects, and I want, and it's that sound that is the, the sound that I think that puts terror in your heart. And you can imagine it vibrating through the ground and being majestic and, and you know and scary at the same time. So that's where that came from. Um, I mean, the other things I think is taken taken off in there, things like that. Um, and there's a scream of the angels as well, which aren't weeping angels, by the way. They're meant to be like metallic angels of prehistory, and their sort of scream came from the the way I described it in the book was that it's a deep, juddering scream that sounds like the the air in front of them has been ripped apart as they're travelling. And so I think I just went online and got lots of different screams and then edited them together in Cubase and put reverb on them and a bit of delay and and whatever, just to get that sound, really. So that took a bit of doing.
0: Because that is is a genuinely scary scene for audio. Yeah. You've you've got Marty, I think he's frozen, and Tenant saying, you know, come on, get in the TARDIS, and he's just frozen, he's that scared. But even as a listener, even just driving down a motorway, you know, Mm. in the middle of summer or whenever I was listening to it, it was Mm. like,
1: oh, this is... This Is actually having an effect on me, you know. It, it, <laughs> it, it was scary, yeah. That was, well, that was one of the chapter endings that I had in my head from the beginning. One of the first ones, actually. I wanted him to go back in time, and then this idea of seeing the mountain above uh, the uh, the mothership above Mount Sinai, and then four metallic angels come flying towards them. You know, how would that feel to be real? And if it was so fearful that he was paralyzed, and that idea of him, you could hear him getting closer and closer, that that idea really played out in my head. Like a lot of them, these, the chapter endings did. They played out my head for years before I got a chance to write them down, and that was a big chapter ending for me. Yeah, so I'm glad that came across well. Yeah, and and no spoilers, people. But
0: you know, it's not just about spaceships above mountains. It's it's <laughs> only a tiny part of it. Mm, <laughs>
1: trust, yes, trust me on that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's trying to get the balance right. I think between you know having that action sort of thing, if you like, and adventure and, and things you'd expect from Doctor Who, along with a more thoughtful stuff that goes on with it as well you know
0: mm, that's right now when you got to the end of the project how, how did you feel you know were you glad you'd finished and it was going to be out there or did you want to go back to the start and do it all again you know people have such different reactions when they finish major
1: projects especially a big passion project like this how, yeah how did you feel when i finished writing the book do you mean originally or when i did the audio well actually I, I
0: wouldn't mind knowing about both yeah
1: um yeah, when I finished the book, it, yeah, it was a lovely sense of completion, really, um, because, like anything, it's like recording albums, exactly the same. The the moment that you get the CD back, or all the CDs back, in the cellophane package, and they're all finished, and it's there. It's an amazing feeling. I never lose the buzz that you get when you finish a project like that. It's There's nothing sad about it. It's a sense of completion. And that was definitely the the case with Eternal as well. When I, when I wrote the last chapter, I I didn't feel sad, I just felt complete wow I got to the end and it was the ending that I always had for it and, and I finished it and um, I played it to my m- I, well I, sorry I, I gave the book to my mum in, in parts as I was writing it really so she was reading it along and on the journey and she'd read the ad- end of chapter 39 <laughs> And she wanted to throw the book to the other side of the room when she got to the end, because of the way that ends. No spoilers, but no, um, no spoilers. When she uh, when she heard the last chapter, she was really pleased and uh, and said that was the the best ending that it could have had and the only ending it could have had. And she was really chuffed with it. So that made me chuffed as well. So yeah, no, I mean once I finished it, I was in writing it. I was I was really pleased um, just to, to get it done really. But and once I'd finished the audio, yeah, that was a sense of completion as well because. As I said, we needed to get on with some, writing some music and recording some music, so that it was in that sense as well. But it was lovely just to to hear it all come together. And for me, you know, for me as someone that's written it, and you know, these chapters, when I when I wrote the chapters uh, on my own in the studio, I used to sort of read them back and obviously, almost do the voices like I did when I was doing the audio adaption as well, is get into it and read it out as it would be. And so I was used to um, doing it like that, but just to myself. So it was nice to record it and then hear it come to life with the music and and um you know get my other family members involved in places as well on it, mm. it, it yeah no it was lovely, it was a great great sense of completion. And the fact that people have listened to it as well, I mean it's not been hundreds or anything like that, but people like yourself and there's there's other people that have written in and said, I'm really enjoying it. And it's such a buzz to know that people are on that journey. And everything that happened in my head and went through my fingers onto the page and then onto the audio that they've been on that journey as well and followed it and enjoyed it it's, it's a great buzz that it's great yeah
0: well i think like you know our, our podcasts and other things we put out there it'll have a life well beyond the here and now you know yeah. especially uh with what you're going to be doing with the the chapters going forward i think people who maybe maybe heard that it was happening but it was halfway through and they didn't know how to sort of get involved with it you know maybe they'll be tuning in now so it has a whole new life
1: yeah, I hope so. Because the 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 intention is now that obviously to release them as as box sets, which uh, box sets that was uh, probably the wrong word for it, but as collections. Uh, the first one's going out. Well, it'll be out by the time people hear this this podcast. I'm actually putting it online tonight. We're recording on Tuesday. The is it the 11th or 12th, isn't it? Tuesday, the 12th of April. Um, so so yeah, I'm going to put it out on tonight. The first eight chapters as collected box sets, just in the Proctor Who feed on the own, so people can can hear the whole thing. You know, in in, in five different uh, box sets that come in, in the, over the next sort of you know couple of months, or whatever it'll be to get it all done. But I always say that I, if people do take the time to listen to it, I'd love it if they could listen to it one chapter at a time. That's how it was written. Now and now, how I really think it would benefit to be listened to. To be honest, <laughs> just just like classic Who should be watched one episode yeah. a, a week. <laughs> Definitely, definitely. Well, one, yeah, one episode at a time. When we're rewatching the the classic series at the minute for the podcast, I still watch just one a day. That's that's how I do it. I think Bob binge watches them all the day before we do a, a podcast. I couldn't do that. I like to. I like to have the gap. I, I think that, and I think that's the same with Eternal. I think people should have the gap in it. <laughs> yeah, Bob was mentioning that. I think it was was it the invasion of the dinosaurs um yeah. episode. He, he said he just, you know, shotgun through them all in one go and I was like, Oh, I don't know I could do that. <laughs> no, definitely. I th- I think you'd benefit from having the gap that's how they were meant to be watched, to be honest. And uh you know, that's how I think you should watch them. <laughs> yeah, I,
0: I I must admit I tend to do when I'm doing classic era, maybe one a day. Two if two maybe, you know. Mm. Anyway, getting back to these questions. <laughs> before i get off on a reverie about watching classic doctor who there's nothing wrong with that (laughs) no no we'll actually get to that um after we've finished talking eternal um would you ever do another story i I know this was the big story that's in you like everyone has their big story would you ever do another story maybe not so epic maybe not so personal but another doctor who story that you might record and make as
1: an audiobook because i think you do have a real talent for doing it well thank you very much um I probably would. I don't have any ideas at all for another story because all the ideas that I had, the sort of hopefully moments where people go, wow, that was, that's a good idea. I've never heard that before. I've never seen that before. Well, I've not seen it, but, you know, never heard anything like that before, described that way. All them ideas that I had were, I've put them all into eternal. I've used them all. So I don't have another idea for a story, really, but I would love to because I did enjoy doing it. Um, and I liked doing the different voices. I liked I liked creating the music and finding the right music in a scene to build it or give it the right, you know, emotion or dramatic lift or whatever it needed at that moment. I really enjoyed doing all that. I suppose that's the musician side of me coming out. And I think, uh, I think uh, the performing of it as well is because I'm a singer, I'm used to performing. And I think I've never done any audio reading before ever. Um, I enjoyed doing this because... It was like performing in a way and trying to get the different voices for each character and make sure that when it's just um, Martin the Doctor and the narrator, that all three sounded slightly different from each other, you know, which is quite difficult when you're on your own.
0: Yeah, and, and they really do. I mean, it's like uh, for people out there listening to this, it's like when, I don't know, Katie Manning is narrating a, um, a Third Doctor story and she'll do a Third Doctor voice. It's Katie Manning, but yeah. it sounds like the Third Doctor, you know, and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think when you're, you know, like I did earlier, very, very badly in this podcast, I said, you know, come on, Marty, you know, when you're doing the, the 10th Doctor style of things and, you know, yeah. but,
1: and then your Matt Smith is, is different again, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's just, I mean, with the Doctor, I, whether it's the 10th or 11th, to be honest, a lot of it was just talking really fast, yes. as fast as you can, and also more excitable, so it's more lifted. And Marty was more, maybe lighter, maybe a bit slower, um, and then the narrator voice is just my normal voice, but but trying to be quite monotone or whatever. Yeah, it's weird, really. It's funny once you get your head into the characters. Um, there's a character called the Dark Messiah. No spoilers. That uh, comes. <laughs> that pops up uh, during the whole thing, and he was the. Probably the easiest character for me to do the voice for. And and the when I originally wrote it, the his words as well and the way that he spoke, I found that really easy to do, which is really, really um worrying. <laughs> when you hear it'll know why. But um but yeah. But I enjoyed doing all that. I, I loved it. I, I, you know, and then editing it later to maybe affect the voice slightly just to make it a little bit different. Yeah, yeah it was all good.
0: Now, I had a feeling you like doing voices. I mean, at the end of Prog Two, we have goodbye, goodbye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: which is pretty much the same voice that he used for the Dark Messiah, almost. But it's That's my normal it. voice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's only so many voices you can do. But uh, yeah, no, I've enjoyed doing the the voice in for Prog Who. It's uh, it's a fun bit. That um, and the strange thing is, when I ever I do them them bits in Prog Who, the links with the voice. I haven't got a clue what I'm gonna be saying when I start press record. I just I just channel. It comes from somewhere else, to be honest. I don't know what the hell's going on. But I have no idea what I'm going to say. So there you go. That's inside information.
0: Mm. <laughs> does, does it make you feel weird to know that, you know, driving down a Sydney street somewhere, there's me in my car hearing it, and I hear goodbye, yeah. goodbye, everybody. <laughs> and I'll sometimes say out loud, goodbye, goodbye, everybody, <laughs> and say it back while I'm driving
1: along. <laughs> no, that's great. It is great. I, mean, I love the fact that people all over the world, uh, you know, listen to podcasts. It's an amazing feeling, into it, really? Because we just have a laugh doing it, as you know. We just laugh. We, there's, I think the most important thing with Prog 2 is that we, we laugh when we're doing it, and we always laugh. Um, it's part of, part of it, you know. It's never poo-faced. We're, we're, and it's fun. We, we just have so much fun. And so the fact that people listen to it and en- enjoy it and, and uh, you know, and have it on their journey to work or whatever, the same way that I listen to it with the podcast when I'm out on my bike or walking the dog or whatever, it's great. It's just a buzz to know that people are doing that, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And do you have any advice to people, now that
0: you've done this, do you have any advice to people out there who might think, oh, I'd like to do that? You know, whether it's the writing side or the production side, is there anything that just stands out that you might like to impart?
1: Well, um, gosh, I don't feel um, qualified to do that, to be honest. Oh, but well, you uh, because you've done Well, it. <laughs> maybe, Yeah. <okay. laughs> Um, yeah, just, just go for it, really, and enjoy it. That's the most thing. When you're reading it, you know, as long as you put it across, I think that's the thing. Same with singing. As long as you put it across like you mean it mm. and and get into it and enjoy it and just do the best you can, really. That's all you can be asked to do into it, really. Um, try not to spend as many hours doing it as what well. I did, really, because that was pretty crazy. But, uh, no, it, it takes how long it takes, really. No, just, just get on with it. That's what I say about anything, really. If you've got an idea for a story... Or anything, an adaptation. Just get on and do it. It's a lot of people can talk the talk out there, but uh, you just got to keep 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 at it until you've you've done it. Really, yeah.
0: You've you've just got to do the work.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: You know, I, I had this conversation with someone um, recently, and they were saying, "Oh, I'd like to do this, and I'd like to do." That. I said, "Well, you just got to sit down and do the work."
1: Yeah, definitely. You know,
0: and it was almost like a light bulb going on above their head. I didn't think I was being profound. (laughs) I thought I was just stating the obvious. But I think sometimes people do get caught up thinking, oh, I could do this or I could do that or
1: I'd be really good at this, but they never do it. No, that's the thing. You've got to thought words and action and the thought word deed, isn't it, really? You've got to... A lot of people have the thought and the word about it. That just doing the deed is the, is the final thing, and you've, you've got to do that. Otherwise, obviously, it never gets done.
3: <laughs> mm,
0: exactly. Now, before we get on to some general Doctor Who chit-chat, because I'm, I'm, I'm dying to do that too now that I actually have... Before the, the show, listeners, we were talking about how it's so strange talking to someone you listen to all the time, and suddenly they're interactive when you get them on Skype like this. So I, I do want to have a, a good old chat about Doctor Who in a minute. Good, but, good, good downloading these uh these box sets off off the proctor who feed where can people yeah. find proctor who
1: uh well on itunes um and we've also got a website www.proctorwho.co.uk um basically there really and and just um yeah you get in your in your uh podcast app or whatever just search for proctor who and hopefully it'll, it'll come up yeah. so yeah that'd be cool And if
0: you're putting it out tonight, by the time this goes out at the end of the month, it will definitely be up there. Actually, probably two box sets will be up there by then.
1: Yeah, probably, yeah. But remember, listen one chapter at a time. One chapter at a time, kids. And in the right order as well. That's important. And eat your greens in between. Yeah. That's important too. Brush your teeth.
0: (laughs) Okay, and we might cut the interview in half there. What we've been doing in past episodes of The Doctor Who Show is playing a full one-hour interview before you get to any of the segments. And this time around, I want to try chopping the interview in half and getting to things like the a to z and letter lords and who Teaks roadshow and all that sort of stuff a lot quicker and then at the end of the show we'll come back to the second half of the interview so do keep listening to the podcast and at the end of the show you'll hear the second half of mark and, and myself having a good old chat about doctor who in general
4: To Z of Doctor Who by Ian Martin, Part Four. D Dapole figures in the world according to Dapple, 1980s Doctor Who toy producer. Sylvester McCoy is about a foot taller than Tom Baker. K9 is green. The TARDIS console has five sides. Davros has two arms. Bonnie Langford is almost seven feet tall, and the Tetraps are in some sense worthy of an action figure. Dark Doctor, Sylvester McCoy's It's one thing to destroy Scarrow, waltz arm in arm with death across the surface of the moon, or psychologically destroy your vulnerable female companion by telling her you think she's rubbish. But the Seventh Doctor went on to commit astonishing acts of cruelty in the name of being Time's Champion in the virgin new adventure novels he manipulated ace's first lover yan into dying to save the planet heaven he allowed whole star systems to boil away to space in the pit and the seeds of this vengeful godlike figure were sown early on though because let's not forget in his debut story he um he tripped over his own trousers and played the spoons on the rani's knockers dark times indeed David Cameron. Susan Foreman stared silently across the tabletop at her husband, who was nonchalantly chewing a piece of toast. She looked at his jowls, his cold, ham-like face. She gazed out of the window at the ravaged, broken vista of a London shattered by terrible poverty, squalor and disease. The water was poisoned. There was no power, no electricity. "'People live desperate, hand-to-mouth existences, "'every simple meal a temporary forestalling of horrible death. "'She looked at the impassive face of the man she had married, "'the man she had left her grandfather for, "'David Cameron, a man who had pledged his strength "'to leading and uniting the British people. "'Susan saw only rubble and weeds and pain. "'You and your austerity measures,' she began. Cameron popped a quail's egg into his moist-lipped face. We're all in this together, he lied. Have you seen my pig's head anywhere? Death to the Daleks. Centuries from now, humanity, facing a mineral drought, will have regressed to the point where we dress once more in awful brine nylon suits, with Aran sweaters, flared trousers, and really terrible 70s hair, in an effort to conserve the resources of our dying planet. We will send missions into the furthest reaches of space to seek out precious elements and resources. But missions made up of white middle-class British folk, because let's be honest, we'll still be the dominant economic and social class on Earth in 500 years' time, right? 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 In Death to the Daleks, a bunch of humans are stranded on some planet somewhere, inhabited by chanting stone weirdos. But the Doctor arrives to go partying with a swimwear-clad young lady, When the TARDIS breaks down, the Doctor manually opens the door with a crank handle in possibly the least plausible revelation concerning TARDIS design of all time. And they hop outside to discover some Daleks who must be up really late, and have possibly had a few drinks too, because they just aren't able to shoot. To save humanity and bring death to the Daleks, the Doctor breaks into what looks like some weird alien toothpaste factory, while Sarah Jane gets tied up and sacrificed and stuff, I don't know. This was my first VHS, my first peek into the pre-JNT era of Doctor Who, and lo, it was a bit crap. Delta and the Men. This simple three-parter from 1987's Season 24 is undergoing something of a reappraisal in fandom, being reconsidered now as a a 2000-day like tale which perfectly encapsulated the new direction which script editor Andrew Cartmel envisioned for the show, moving it on from the continuity-laden, self-referential hallmarks of the Eric Sayward era to a new, energised, quirky era of offbeat but thought-provoking, richly allegorical stories laced with razor-sharp left-wing social commentary. I say reappraisal because at the time of original transmission, everyone just dismissed the story as complete shit. Having not seen it since transmission, all I can write by way of review is what I can remember, which is this. Ken Dodd, Honeybee's Don Henderson on his knees, which, by a curious coincidence, is also a line from Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. Diva Loka. If, like me, your inbox is full of spam from bookings.com or TripAdvisor advocating the joys of visiting Diva Loca for a long weekend, do what I do, just delete them. The so-called lush verdant forests look like a poorly dressed corner of a television studio. The accommodation is a terrible, cramped little grief box, the catering is woeful, and the bloke running the resort makes Basil Fawlty look like a serene Jeeves. Two caveats, the brunette Welsh lady at the camp is quite hot and generally up for fun with the guests when she's off duty, and the primitive locals are frankly hilarious. Dimensions in Time A curious fact about the 1993 10-minute Doctor Who skit, which was presented in 3D and features actors and locations from EastEnders, is that it's impossible to make jokes about. Even now. Even now. (laughs) Drathro. A regular winner of Best Monster in Doctor Who ever competitions, Drathro was a giant robot who appeared in episodes 1 to 4 of The Trial of a Time Lord. As with the Zygons, fandom grew increasingly bewildered that he'd only had one outing on the telly. And unlike the Zygons, he didn't even get to crop up in The Day of the Doctor. Go figure. Drathro was a mad, bad robot who liked black light, which is almost an oxymoron such as dry water or Sunny Britain. Living in a bunker near the immaculate remains of Marble Arch Underground Station on the burned remains of Earth, or Ravelox, as it's known in the future, Drathro's evil scheme was to harness black light to recharge his iPhone 6000, summon a space Uber, and naff off back to Andromeda with the secrets of the Time Lord Matrix, which he kept in an old petrol can. He was assisted in this scheme only by two blonde, clueless interns, but still he gave the Doctor a run for his money. Not for Drathro, the showy weaponry, such as Dalek death rays, or even deadly fangs or claws, talons or the like. Drathro's two evil powers were shouting and not being able to see anything because the design team hadn't given him any eyes. He eventually blew up and was totally destroyed at the climax of the story, but that doesn't stop anyone using Drathro in numerous examples of fan fiction or even shipping him with the Austin ambassador Y-Reg or even Joan Sims if you like science fiction and you own a Kindle or even uh, ideally an Apple device running the Kindle app you can read my books now go to Amazon and type in Winter Hill, that's me those are my books
5: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Letter Lords. (laughs) You're
3: you're persisting with that, aren't you? I am. It's it's going to catch up. It's like a catchphrase, Jim. Um, I'm Bob Fleming from Proctor Who Podcast.
5: And I'm Jim from the Crinoid Podcast, and we are the Lords of Letters. Indeed we are.
3: purveying the Galaxy Forum from Doctor Who magazine. And this is issue nine, uh, 900 and... It's not. It's 490... It's 490- <laughs> Have you got a time machine? <laughs> yeah. I'm only on 498. Yeah, and uh, it's 498, um, and it's the May edition, I presume, because we did April last month, full of exciting letters. There's some interesting ones this week, actually, isn't there? There are, yes, that you had to That's... just point out to me before we went on air because I couldn't find them. <laughs> but when you, you did, but when you, you didn't find it, them interesting when you when you said that you made it interesting, Jim. Uh, That's the way I tell them. So yeah, should we kick off? Yeah, well, you, yeah, you kick off, young man. Yeah, thank you very much, Kate Griffiths. This is an email. I really enjoyed the interviews and articles in last month's Doctor Who magazine. Uh, but how can it be 20 years since a TV movie? Believe me, Kate, it is. Um, it does <laughs> It doesn't. It doesn't seem two minutes since I was getting uh, very excited about it. I remember really enjoying the movie. And being very pleased that Sylvester McCoy got a proper regeneration scene. It's hard to imagine uh, where Doctor Who would be now uh, if they had. So I've got a bit of glimmer on this shiny, uh, shiny magazine. If they had gone on <laughs> the, uh, gone on to make the series, it could have been very different. And that is very true, Kate. Mm. Well, shall I tell you where I was, Jim? Yeah, tell me your JFK, JF- TV JFK movie moment. Month. Well, I was sixteen. Yeah, I was 16, and I lived in a little town called North Allerton, which is where I grew up, and uh, I knew it was coming out on video, and I can't even tell you how excited I was. And I Mm -hmm. thought it was going to be like when the Phantom Menace came out, you know, when they opened shops till really late kind of thing. And there was thousands of people descending upon like Woolworths, for that. You thought the demand yeah. would be comparable yeah. to that? Yeah, so I got the five, I think it was a, no, sorry, 6am train on the morning at <laughs> right? you so got the HMV in York, which is a half an hour train, journey. it's where obviously where I live now. And yeah, I ran, ran, ran from the train station, was <laughs> camping outside HMV. Guess what, Jim? On my own. <laughs> oh, just, only me, only me there and a road sweep. It opened for about two hours. Anyway, I ran in, I got got my video of Doctor Who, the movie, and I was, obviously, we've been... (laughs) Were you first in the queue, by any chance? First in the queue and last, which is... (laughs) (laughs) So I ran in, I got got it, and I I ran to the station, ran home. I mean, you know, we're sort of like, at this point, was it 10 years, maybe, how many years has it been since Doctor Who was on telly? 89, 96, so it was was a good seven years, wasn't it? Yeah, it's a long time, yeah. and there wasn't much about Doctor Who. wise We didn't have a big finish then. We had the sort of virgin novels, but not a, not a massive amount of new Doctor Who material. So I got this. Video yeah, it kind over.
5: of dropped off the map of it. And then... Yeah,
3: yeah, five five times I think I watched it that day. Loved it, and I think for a, for a Doctor Who fan who'd obviously you know watched the McCoy era or whatever in the classic series and the other VHSs, it was interesting first just McCoy regenerating because that was quite normal in Doctor Who. But on reflection, they should have just done what they did with the new series and straight in. But you know, hindsight's a fine thing. But that's my Mm. sort of you know movie memory. So that it'll always be. I know it's got these little flaws, but it'll always be special to me for that that story I've just told you and the fact that that was just I just adored it because it was new Doctor Who and it had good effects. You know, oh yeah. I think we're always like particularly Doctor Who fans. I think when the classic series was on, you know, if you like Doctor Who, you kind of got a bit bullied. Or whatever, you know, it was crap and people laughed at you if you like Doctor Who. Do you see what I mean?
5: Well, yeah, I mean, if they tune in sort of briefly and they
3: see a naff effect, yeah. then you know, that's the thing they're going to concentrate on. Isn't and it? it wasn't cool back then. I mean, it's cool now, obviously, because it's got great effects and great storylines and whatever else. But this was like, oh, wow, this is like on a par with Star Trek or something, you know, effects wise. So, yeah. you know, that was a, an eye opening. It was quite an adult theme. It was very different to what we were used to, I think, in Doctor Who. Yeah, I mean, it was a
5: a bit of a a culture shock, wasn't it really, in a way? I mean, I was quite apprehensive about it, because it's always been a very British show, isn't it? And I was apprehensive that this would be an American take on my favourite show. And I thought, I'll be full of snogging and car chases and, and you were there right. is snogging and car chases <laughs> in
2: it
5: but you know there's so much other good stuff around that uh, there are some kind of Star Trek rip-ups in there the, the Doctor being half human and uh, the TARDIS chameleon circuit being called a cloaking device yeah. but you know that's just I guess that helps people who like Star Trek who don't know anything about Doctor it kind of, it's kind of an in for them perhaps I don't know but I mean you're absolutely right about the uh, regeneration that is great in terms of continuity and stuff, so that Sylvester McCoy gets a, a proper regeneration scene, but for every other reason, it shouldn't be in there. Yeah. You know, it should be done like it was with uh, Eccleson, just turn up and, Off you go. and you see it through the eye. You pretty much do see it through the eye. Eventually, you start seeing it through the eyes of the uh, companion, don't you? Yeah, of course you do. And that's what you you have to do, certainly at the early stage, when you don't know anything about the Doctor. And, you know, there's a huge section of the audience would know nothing about this character. So, yeah, they made some mistakes in hindsight. You know, it helps it feel part of the family, doesn't it, because of that yeah, got it, Sylvester McCoy involvement. But, yeah, it, it was a stupid thing to do. Perhaps not so much that as all the kind of run-up until, you know, he appears and is shot and regenerates. And, you know, the opening lines, <laughs> <laughs> uh, how to alienate uh, any new v- viewer in about 10 seconds. Yeah just give them a load of backstory with names of things they know oh, nothing so. about. And there you go, that's done it. People have uh, switched over to Roseanne or whatever it was yeah. on the other side that you know made it uh, so
3: tiny in the ratings in America. Well, I, think, I think it was it was sort of dogged and doomed from the get-go. It was pushed and pulled by many parties into something that was actually unbelievably made, really. Because, I mean, you know... You've had, yeah, uh, it's a child of about 15 fathers, isn't it? It's, it really is. And, and yeah. you can tell like in the movie, and I think Paul McGann, fantastic i think if they continued he, well he he has been a brilliant doctor who without a doubt on the, on the big finish audios and the tiny little glimmer of him on television and in this he's fantastic he's a brilliant doctor who he's great yeah. he's a fantastic actor and i think if they continue with the series i don't know what would have happened with it because it was that just getting that 90 minutes of television or you know whatever onto a onto film was a nightmare in itself you know.
5: Yeah, I mean, they would have had to iron everything out if they were going to go for you know a series. they just have to basically make a mark the and then right everything is mm-hmm. sorted now and this is how we're going to go ahead. But, yeah, I was kind of disappointed with it at the time. I like it more now, yeah. but at the time it's disappointed. But I was excited about seeing what might happen next because, you know, series don't necessarily get things right on the first episode and you know, they've got time to think about it before a, a series is set up and... You know, it could have been really interesting. Mm. What would have happened, you know, with the Russell T. Davis version had discontinued? We'll never know, but it would have been different. I mean, it might have... The American version might have destroyed the programme forever, or it might have kept it going until the BBC thought, well... Let's have it back because it's doing well. Or,
3: well, we have we have be a more, more kind of British American joint venture or something like that, which we don't know, which it kind of is now, really. You know, we get a lot of funding, yeah. So, we <laughs> nothing to do with do it, <laughs> <apart> <laughs> to do an unofficial podcast like, but you know, <laughs> you get funded by America, I, funded, I don't. By America, yeah. I didn't tell you that, Jim, <laughs> yeah. We get pence a week or cents as they call them over in America, but <laughs> it's it's a tricky one, like because it was really weird. I think watching it the first time, but like I said before, just because it was so full on with effects and it was mm. so cool man to see it like it was guns there was a little bit of swearing there was snogging you know and i was like 16 i was like yeah man the doctor's got you know swagging and all that and obviously it's just <laughs> just normal now isn't it to have all that carry on well, in a way, in a way, it made it um, less
5: of a shock to her. Uh, yeah, you know, I think that, yeah, it was, it was know, a before, the up.
3: more narrow-minded fans, <laughs> from,
5: you know, when Eccleston and, and the, you know the, the newer doctors started snogging people,
3: <laughs> it does as well. But I think for the, apart from the last sort of 15, 20 minutes, it's a great film. But the last, the end of it is like, what are you talking about? Well, I think it's really
5: good actually until Eric Roberts starts dressing <laughs> for the occasion. <laughs> yeah, then it's like, what, what, what's going on?
6: <laughs> That's almost the
5: exact moment where it all goes pear shaped. Exactly, me,
3: yeah. And he just wanders down the stairs, and it's just fairly awful, actually. After that. It is, I think it's um, I think my favourite thing about this is obviously Paul McGann's brilliant, but the TARDIS. This is the best looking TARDIS set of them all, in my personal opinion. I love this TARDIS set. It's great, yeah. Not sure about the bats. <laughs> I know but it's kind of <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit crazy, but I just I don't know. I mean, yeah, for me, it just it reeks of like time travel and. It's just all sorts going on in it. It's just meant it's a mental tardis, but looks so gothic and stunning. I love it.
5: Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful to look at. Yeah, it's- the problems aren't really that. with the eye of harmony room. <laughs> <laughs> because there's
3: leaves and stuff lying around on the floor. What on earth is going What's on? It? What's Bats it? Bats and the Belfry? <laughs> but overall, I mean, I-, I for the reason I gave initially, I love this. It's just got a right place in my heart. I think. Well, it's like a lot of things. If you if you don't
5: know where things are going you're kind of more apprehensive and almost less ready to like stuff when you get a kind of full stop to it and you something else that you prefer happens afterwards you can look back at that thing and with more fondness can't yeah
3: it? of course you can yeah
5: so with the tv movie when that sort of uh, route for doc 2 finished and we got something you know i think in most people opinion, better than that oh, yeah you can look back at tv movie and think yeah it's a you know, I'm glad it didn't continue. Probably, but it, you know, it's an interesting kind of oddity.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's kind of like the bits that I love. That's what I love about Doctor Who fans: we ignore certain parts of what it, what it's trying to bring into canon. So, like the Doctor being half human, <laughs> you sort of make excuses for Doctor Who. I, I always have to. Yeah, um, yeah, I think I, so, yeah. I think every podcast we do, we sort of make excuses for the episode that we're reviewing. But <laughs> that's what makes Doctor Who awesome and interesting, and the best TV show on television. Well, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, game on. Mm, game on. <laughs> Do you like that link? That was good. That was smooth, Jim.
5: That was absolutely seamless. <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, well, as you might guess. there's a ton of letters this time about, about the TV movie because that was what the last magazine was talking about. Two or three issues back now, I think they had a big feature on Doctor Who games. So, you know, Doctor Who video games, computer games, that kind of stuff. And uh, I'm not going to read the letters because they're quite long, but they're from Natalie Owen and Patrick Furlan, if you want to refer to them in the magazine. They're basically just talking about the article and you know, the games that they'd played and stuff like that. But what I wanted to do, Bob, is ask you
3: what Doctor Who video games you have played in your time. Well, it's a weird one with Doctor Who. It's a bit like toys with Doctor Who because he he doesn't use a gun. He goes around in a yeah. phone box... <laughs> So there's not a lot of sort of, you know, a video video game is made up of action usually, isn't it? Or something like with Doctor Who, it's got to be puzzles. But I think with with the toys and with the games with Doctor Who, it's always been a struggle to sort of have anything that's sort of gripping or lengthy. Do you know what I mean? It's just,
5: or anything like any other computer game that's
3: popular. Yeah, pretty much. And it's the same with toys kids like, you know, boys or kids like guns and action and cars and things that move around and all that kind of stuff. And I think it's always been a tricky one with Doctor who not just in the toy world, but particularly in the gaming world. I remember the Anthony only one destiny, the doctors was it? Yeah. That was Mm. really bad. It was Well, I think it tried to, di- from from what I remember, because obviously computers back then weren't the spec they are now. So, like, I remember it just being really hard to load. And it was trying, I think it was trying to cram too much into so it. And obviously the, the film element of it, I couldn't make head and tail of it. And I was really excited about it. I was incredibly excited about oh, it. Yeah. I got Anthony Haley, I was like, wow, this is going to be awesome. Then just sort of pot around the TARDIS, and it was crap. And that, and that and that was it. I was like, well, that was that was rubbish. But yeah, ever since then there's been no real. I've, I think I've tried. I definitely remember that one because I remember being really annoyed that it was crap, apart from the Anthony bit. Well, that was brilliant.
5: That's the last time he recorded anything as a master, wasn't it? And he's absolutely brilliant. Oh, man. he's
3: class. He's proper over-dramatically camp, like he always was.
5: Yeah, that's really that, that's good. And yeah, really, really he's,
3: fat. He's
5: carrying <laughs> carrying a, a bit of extra
2: timber yeah. by then, isn't it? <laughs>
5: But uh, yeah, I mean, I was excited because you know it was quite nice to see like Sontarans and Autons yes. and things wandering about. But you know, there's zero gameplay, was there? That's a the problem. No, no not so really. It was. I mean, visually, it was wasn't brilliant because that, you know, nothing was back then. But you know, it, it wasn't anywhere near state of the art even
3: for then, was it? Back then, so. Well, I think was I think it's how desperate, desperate mm, disappointing, for, desperate for anything that was new Doctor Who footage. And yeah. you know, that's why I think we got quite excited about this game. But it was it was terrible. But it's a hard guess it's a hard thing to do, Doctor Who. I've not tried the Eternity Clock, which was the more modern one, wasn't it?
5: No, I I haven't either. Uh, Actually I did play something before Destiny of the Doctors called Dalek Attack. Now I can't remember if I had this or not. I didn't play it very often, so I probably didn't have it, and maybe my friend did. Otherwise I'd probably would have been on it all the time. But that was a kind of platform shoot 'em up type thing. Mm you know, where the Doctor's going around destroying, <laughs> not people, but, you know, destroying monsters and stuff. So, yeah. like you say, it's not really yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not. what the Doctor does, except for the odd moment in Day of the Daleks. Or whatever. But speaking of which, you actually see some Ogrons in this. So, yeah, there were a few little bits and pieces that I really enjoyed with that. And it was kind of fun, mindless mm. fun, but it wasn't in the kind of, you know, the Doctor spirit, really, and going around shooting everything. That's a difficult, isn't right? I mean, it? It's a tough one. Yeah, it's a, it's a hard sell, you know. I suppose with the rise in sort of puzzle-solving games, you know, there's more chance of getting a, a decent one. And I think we did with those uh, BBC Doctor adventure things, you know, with Phil Ford and, yes. and various other writers. With James Moran, I think wrote. It's more wrote of what?
3: a story. It was more like them, you know, like a story one, wasn't it? So your options. You remember them books you used to get?
5: As, oh as a yeah. Kid, choose and, your, yeah, choose your ending. They go to page
3: forty-five for this, you know, kind of thing, and it was more like that, wasn't it? Which is. I think it's good. I used to love their books as a kid, anyway. But so, so it's more mm. that sort of theme, really. Yes, they're sort of point and click games, aren't they? And I,
5: I've got them all downloaded. I, I started playing the first one, but yeah, I'm not particularly good at this sort of thing, so I got a bit stuck on Scaro, and uh, you know, I got a bit frustrated
3: and Just gave it up. But it's, I mean, know, it's not Call of Duty. They'll it. they'll go back. It's not Call of Duty. It's not. <laughs> you know, it's not FIFA. Not, not quite, or whatever no. you know the kids are playing nowadays. I tell you what, though, is a fact for you, and it's just come to me. The, the mm-hmm. person that's responsible for my Doctor Who obsession is my slightly older cousin, Stephen. And uh, when I was a kid, I think the first one I got introduced to was the Five Doctors, which he played me. In fact, Revenge Basically, he had, he had a few uh, videos. He was, he was a naughty man. He used to, basically, we had two video players and we'd tape. <gasps> yeah, naughty, innit? You know, you wouldn't hear about that kind of thing nowadays. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so he put on, he did me a video on Five Docs. He did me a video of *Avenger of the Cybermen*, uh, and I think I also rented. But basically, he's he's the man responsible for me adoring and being obsessed with Doctor Who. He's also a computer programmer, and this is going back to I'd have been about five or six. So this is going back to thirty years, possibly. Uh, he had a Commodore, some sort of Commodore computer at the time.
5: Amiga. Was Amiga,
3: maybe Commodore, maybe Commodore sixty four. I think it might be. Oh yeah, earlier on. Yeah. So I, don't, I don't, you know, I was very young anyway, and we designed a Doctor Who computer game, mm. and it was like, it was just basically a square. I think it had the TARDIS in the middle, and then you had to go around a couple of side men or something. I say we, he, <laughs> and I watched him do it. So we had, we, yeah, I think we did. About, he did about two or three levels of this game. But yeah, I just remember that then, yeah. He, d- he designed the, probably the first Doctor Who computer game ever on a Commodore oh. CPC 464. And I, at the time, I thought this is the best thing ever. But basically, all you try to do is avoid a couple of side men and get into a TARDIS. Oh, it sounds a bit like my brother actually wrote a really? uh, computer game. Maybe maybe around the
5: same time. This one, the BBC Micro. Right. And um, it was called Dalek Maze. And uh, you had to navigate this maze where the, the TARDIS was going to Dematerialize in the centre of this maze. So you had a kind of time limit before it went on of its own accord sort of thing. Yeah. And you had to uh, get past these Daleks and if you are in the line of fire and close enough, they could zap you. So you had to wait till they go past. They, they couldn't see behind themselves. So you had to wait for them to go past and creep up into the next
3: level of the maze sort of thing. So yeah, good fun. Maybe around the same time, I don't awesome. know. I mean, it, I mean, it took him hours. And he was like a proper computer programmer. It took him mm. hours. Just to make like one little computer subman. I mean... I don't know if you remember, I remember I'm, uh, I got an Amstrad CPC 464 with a tape player, you know, to load your game. Right. It took about half an hour. Oh, yeah. And to do anything, you had to program it all in, you know, like, back yeah. to, and he spent hours on it. And then, you know, waited with him while he did it. And then we played it and it was the just the best thing ever. We created mm. kind of a Doctor Who game where we Brilliant. went into a room and then avoided a Cyberman uh, and a TARDIS. And yeah, it was just ace. Uh, it was, I'd love to go back and play it now because it'd be you know, obviously awful. But um, <laughs> at the time, it was brilliant. And uh, yeah. Well, you don't know. I mean, it, it,
5: it probably it might have still have really good gameplay because that is always the most important thing. You never mind your graphics No, I think stuff. it was terrible.
3: But, <laughs> <laughs> but it was, you know, it's a good memory. And like I say, it's my cousin, Stephen. Thank you, cousin, Stephen, for getting me into Doctor Who. Yeah, he sounds like a legend. Yeah, he is. He is. So yeah, there you go bit of personal experience and i just want to mention now we're on games dimensions i love lego games i oh, think yeah. they're brilliant and they're, they're brilliant on any sort of format because it's just so addictive and playable mm. you know like the there's loads of like batman i was well into batman lego and lord of the rings and all that kind of stuff so when i found out doctor Who was coming out on lego game i was like brilliant it's like 90 quid 100 quid that's £100, possibly $2,000 if you're in Australia. I don't know. I don't know the currency or $5,000 in America. I don't know. But 100 sterling English pounds for a computer game with a bit of Lego. That's a lot. Yeah, that is where
5: well, it's going to price a lot of
3: people out, isn't it? It's priced it's me out, point. Jim. It's priced me out. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe it'll go down in future years. I hope so. But the thing is, if you just want the game, you know, the, say, I don't know, a PS4 game, whatever, is £30, £40, whatever it is, yeah, but it's like double the price, nearly triple the price when it first came out. It's a lot of money for a yeah. for a daft Lego game, <laughs> and it, it, it yeah Lego games are sort of like twenty quid.
6: Because yeah. you'll
3: finish them, and you'll, you know you have a good time on them, but you'll finish them in about you know a few hours. But it's not exactly but they're the price, price for the family market, aren't they? Yeah,
5: I the basic Lego games, yeah, So they're not going to be yeah you know, mega expensive, but um, this one clearly is. But well expensive, crazy. Mm. I must just mention uh, one more game that, uh, that isn't actually at all Doctor Who related, <laughs> but had the uh, temerity to call itself Attack of the Cybermen.
6: This is
5: not long after, yeah, not long after Attack of the Cybermen came out. Was it designed by my cousin Stephen? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'll have to investigate because the, <laughs> the BBC probably after him for breaching copyright. Oh, obviously. is it
3: totally unofficial, eh? Like?
5: Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it was nothing to talk to anywhere on, on the cover. There's, there weren't even the pictures of Cybermen. And in fact, the graphics are nothing like Cybermen. Cool. It's just like a name. There isn't even a fat controller in it. So I was, <laughs> I was very disappointed. No one got their hands crushed into a, blood a bloody mush. Blood. And no one got their uh, head knocked off. So no, it's sort of a crappy, crappy game, but it called itself Attack of
3: the Simon. Never heard that one.
5: Blooming cheek! I, uh, I really
3: want to play it now, though, because it sounds naughty. <laughs> <laughs> right, that is the only interesting thing about it is the <laughs> copyright infringement. Uh, we have a theory in our next letter from Louise Pond entitled "Time Lord Evolution." And she says, after watching the Dalek story, I came up with a theory as to why humans uh, look so Time Lord. What if when Gallifrey was just starting out, Gallifreyans uh, that weren't seen as Time Lord compatible were taken to a planet called Earth, which hadn't been populated yet? Then, because of a different environment and ecosystem, uh, they evolved to have only one heart and the brain size reduced. Uh, The subspecies uh, would then gradually evolve into Neanderthals as we knew them. It could also answer why the doctor came to Earth in the first place uh, and also comes back to it a lot, he does. He likes the Earth, as the Doctor like? I think that might have to do with budget reasons, more than anything else. And it's because he's half human. But like, oh, Of course he is. No, no he isn't, Jim. No, he isn't, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Time Lords of an ancient, ancient civilization, so maybe the Doctor learnt about it and wanted to find the subspecies of Time Lord. I just wanted to share this theory with other fans and see what they think. Well, Jim, over to you. You're the scientist. <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, yeah. Just, doctor... Where do you get that? Like, Dr. To? Cameron. Professor Cameron, coming over to you. Science division. <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> uh, if I'm the science
5: division, we really are in trouble. <laughs> um, well, it's a very interesting idea, certainly, unless things have changed drastically since the time, you know, this may have happened. Mm. I mean, it occurs to me that uh, there are Gallifreyans who aren't Time Lords. I, mean, I don't think the you know, the Chancellery Guards, you know, Maxwell and Andred and that lot are Time Lords, and I don't think the Sheboggans are Time Lords out there in the, in the wastelands mm. so yeah i mean it might have been something that happened in the dark days of you know the death zone and all that kind of stuff where the time lords seem to be you know more amoral or immoral or whatever you could see them shipping off people that they didn't think were up to snuff on to another planet but um you know it isn't the case as far as i can see now that gallifrey is only populated by time lords
3: well i think Going back to what you were saying there about the guard, the Gallifrey guard, obviously we know they do regenerate now, but I've always seen it personally as a class system. So Yeah, yeah, I, I do, really. You know, they all have the same ability from the point of view as in they can regenerate, That's that sort of, all, I'm all right with that bit. But it's a full class system, so you've got a high council, the parliament, if you like or the Senate, or, you know, whatever you want to call it. And then from thereafter, you're going to have different people doing different jobs, if you like, or offering different services or have, having the ability to do different services. I think I genuinely believe that Time Lords are just Time Lords. I don't think there's subgroups or different abilities. I just think it's generally a class system. That's that's the way I sort of perceive it. Now, I know – did you ever read Lung Barrow? Um, I didn't, no, but that's uh, about the – the Doctor's ancestral home, isn't it? Crazy, th- crazy theories going on there, and I couldn't even explain them if I tried. Cause it's been so long since I re- uh, since i read it, but I mean, it, I suppose it's quite plausible, isn't it? Anything can be plausible in Doctor Who if you make it so. Well, of course, yeah. I mean,
5: it, it, it looks like, particularly with, you know, what they might have done with Ace had the, yes, the classic the development on. The time,
3: of course, that was Yeah.
5: Yeah, so it strikes me you could either a Time Lord by birth, or you can go through the academy, or yeah, perhaps maybe just the academy route. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So if you're clever enough, you you get inducted into the, the world of the Time Lord. So then maybe yeah, you, I don't know. Yeah, and, uh, powers? Yeah, maybe you are somehow given powers. I mean, they, it seems to be within their gift to give people extra regenerations. So maybe they can bestow certain faculties onto anyone who you know makes the grade, sort of thing. Mm. I don't know. It's it's a bit muddy. I think all that, isn't it? And you know, this particular idea is you know, no less valid. No, than absolutely not. A not. lot,
3: a lot of things that've been on the screen. No, absolutely not. They do like to change it a lot. That you know, the mm-hmm. history of Gallifrey, and because they are so ever powerful, which I think's a good thing. Why RTD, Rusty Davis took it out of the show because they are too powerful and they can do whatever they want. If you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> a bit like what GNT thought of the sonic screwdriver. Mental, but uh, you know, it's, it's so. Taking them out of the show and then gradually bringing them back in again, but with limited powers, is a great idea. But that's the thing, you can change the mythology of Gallifrey or the Time Lords 100% because it's been done so many times. And you can yeah, go down whatever path, whatever path you want. So, yeah, it's a nice, I like that little theory. Yeah, yeah, it's a good
5: one. Yeah, these are the kind of letters we like, aren't they? Yeah. Things that uh, push at the boundaries of. ones that give us so to talk what about We to do a podcast. <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> well, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, chiefly that's. <laughs> but
3: yeah, good one. Okay.
5: Yeah, well done, uh, Louise. Keep them coming. I think we've got time for one more. Yeah. And this one is from Hugh Turberville via email. That's a cool one. And a really cool it is, isn't it? Hugh
3: of the Turbervilles. Yeah. Doctor, he says, Hugh of the Turbervilles. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Hugh. Doctor, the Turbervilles are coming. <laughs> That's a brilliant name. Sorry, sorry.
5: <laughs> anyway, Hugh says, Stephen Moffat's views on the rescue in DWM 497 highlight a difference between his vision of Doc Two and that of Russell T. Davis. Stephen says it was crazy to sideline the charismatic, unpredictable time travelling genius, and instead promote these slightly too earnest teachers. They are the everymen, the characters the audience relate to. They are also brilliant actors. Davies made a similar move with Rose Tyler. Contentiously, controversially, the mass audience responds to this better. Mm. So, Bob, should the Doctor or the companions be the focus of
3: the show? It's a tricky one. I think when they brought it back, it was quite right again to do it through the eyes of a companion, like they did Mm. in The Unearthly Child, you know, taking Ian and Barbara, because it was them that you you first met, really, wasn't it? Then it's from their point of view of going into the title. So if it's good enough to be done in 1963, it's good enough to be done in 2005 – does lend itself to when you're introducing an audience to Doctor Who which we were completely getting in 2005 hmm. a brand new audience of you know people that younger people who are now in their sort of 20s do you see what I mean who have yeah. been who fans all their lives which I love I love that when I meet sort of young, you know 20 year olds and the you know I say oh yes I know about Doctor Who I've been Doctor Who for I' my life and I'm obviously only 16 years older than them but obviously went through hmm. a bit of the classic series been through all the classic now. their only knowledge of Doctor Who really is the last sort of ten years. Yeah. And the only way you can see them in is through the companion's eyes, which is why it works so well both times. Um, mm. however, thereafter, once you established with Daleks normally, you know, you've established a show, you've established a character and then the doctor is the the main man, if you see what I mean. Yeah, that's right. I mean I think it's
5: well I think I said earlier when we were talking about the T V movie, I mean eventually when the story gets going properly, mm. again the Grace you know, who becomes a companion is who we see you know the eyes through which we see the story because again that audience doesn't know anything about the doctors so in those episodes where there's any kind of reboot mm. and the doctor is a mystery you know he can't be you know the relatable element of the show so it has to be humans because we know what humans are like generally speaking we know, the act, we know and, what they
3: do
5: uh, yeah they're the ones to relate to so i think it's no surprise in all types of reboot
3: We've seen it through the companion's eyes. But I think, as well, for example, in 1963 when they did *Unearthly Child*, we we all knew what. Well, obviously, I wasn't alive back then. I don't think even you were, Jim. No, it was, so, <laughs> even uh, I wasn't. <laughs> no. But your sort of teachers were the people you looked up to and respected, so it was, you felt safe going into mm. the TARDIS. If you see me, so it's quite a stroke of genius, really. Going in with two teachers. I'm not sure teachers now would be quite so well, related. Possibly not our BBC representatives from the probably 70s and 80s who were DJs. But <laughs> <laughs> but what you have is in Rose the every girl. If you see, what I mean, yes. and people get on board with that. People get on board with people working in a shop, and they aspire to be a lot more. And that's what the Doctor gives Rose the ability to do, which I think is brilliant. And then that continues pretty much through series one, sort the, of the the play of the Doctor giving it a bit more, giving it a bit more. And I think the whole of the new series has continued to do that, as the old series did, because you've got to add more plot, more weight to the characters as you go. Mm. And that just happens with time. And I think when we've touched on it, pretty much I think when we did our first letter, Laws*, Jim, there's too much baggage. And that's what Doctor Who's done again. So it goes through a cycle of it's got all this baggage and then stops, starts mm. again.
5: Sheds it, you, know, you know, and that's, I think,
3: what's what we would like to see when Chibnall takes over, is that whole process of drop all this baggage that's come with it. But, but I think from the introductory point of view, companions, yes, but then the Doctor needs to become the main, main part of the show, obviously, bouncing off that said companion or companions.
5: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a problem when the Doctor becomes too human, if you like, too related. Oh, I like it when he's a bit more alien, like, you know, Tom Baker or Capaldi. Yeah. Well, Matt Smith to a lesser extent, but certainly not David Tennant, who you know, he becomes almost like an earth man, doesn't he? And yeah, you kind of get to understand how he ticks kind of too much for, for my liking.
3: Well, I think with, with with David Tennant, I mean, I loved Eccleston when it came back. I loved, loved every mm-hmm. week. You know, I'm pleased I wasn't doing a podcast at the time because I was going, hey, Doctor, T he was brilliant. Doctor, he was brilliant. <laughs> uh, like last, last <laughs> month's letters, really. But
5: yeah, you could be one of the Estetford yeah.
3: fans who writes into DWR. I would have been. I was so blinkered. It was just brilliant mm. to be back on television again. And then when David Tennant uh, did the Christmas inversion, and he came out in his pyjamas and he got his suit and I was like, there's Doctor Who, there is Doctor Who, the Doctor Who that I recognised, which he he didn't kind of go on to become, but I love Tennant. But my doctors, as I've said on many occasions, are the, the Sylvester McCoy, the Patrick Trout and the, the Matt Smith kind of, kind of bumbly character. And I love bakery. I love Capaldi as well, don't get me wrong. I love all the Doctors, but that's my favourite sort of character of the Doctor is the Bumbler. And then when mm. he's in, in the thick of it, he's like, right, here we go. I'll tell you what's going to happen. And then that's it. And a bit of mystery. I like a bit of mystery with my Doctor.
5: Yeah, I like a bit of mystery. But in a way, a bumbling Doctor is kind of more relatable than a, you know an aloof alien Doctor who always gets everything right. Yeah. I think you need something somewhere in the middle.
3: Yes. No, no, I agree. Uh, John Pertwee. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Bless him. Yeah,
5: I'd also like, like someone who wasn't so desperately patronising to his
3: companions. but uh, Well, it, it is, but I, I, I don't think they've got the balance right in the new series. Well, a lot of people complaining it's the Clara show, aren't they? Yeah, well, uh, it's
5: even that. But it's also a lot about the Doctor as well. It is.
3: No, no, it is. It is completely,
5: but I just don't... You keep finding out stuff about the Doctor, which... You know, it's interesting,
3: but, you know, I don't think you should ever find out too much about it. No. Him. But I think through even through our eyes, I think it's a good thing to go in through the companion, you are know, in this doctor, you know, this is the doctor's world, then off you go. And mm. that's, that's a good thing. I don't think maybe they always will have the sort of companion heavy episodes because of, you know, filming reasons, which is fine. You can deal with them, particularly if you're on board with the character. Um, yeah. Which is obviously, I think, back in the rescue, you know, Bill Hartnell had been ill. You know he will have mm-hmm. been ill, so that's why they brought in. You know they had to alter quite a few scripts back in the day when, obviously, you got Pooley and everything. So yeah, yeah, to, yeah that wasn't that wasn't, that wasn't that wasn't a sort of sit down and let's plan this. It was like right, <laughs> Bill's ill. Let's pad together an yeah, episode. Seat the pants. Yeah, stop, wasn't it? But, exactly. Where,
5: where, right then, whereas you know, now, it's, particularly when they were so close to oh you know recording, we're so close to transmission. Yeah,
3: yeah, well now it's obviously you know it's all thought out throughout a season really. Mm-hmm. With the thing in mind, if you know we're going to have a Doctor like a companion like episode, so you can have a bit of an all day because otherwise it's a grueling schedule, you know. So, but uh no, yeah, exactly. The way to do it—that's the way to do it, in my opinion. And then off you go. Yeah, I mean,
5: I don't think there's anything wrong with you know switching emphasis between the Doctor and the companion, between different stories. And I think the the Doctor should always be a bit mysterious, and I think the companion should always be the identification figure, and yeah. you know, take it from there, really. Which, which Clara hasn't been
3: really, because she's, I mean, she has to a degree, particularly last series, I think, but like, the whole timeline of Clara in the Matt Smithy was like, what? Huh? You know, <laughs> like, what, what's going on? Why can't you just be a normal girl and we understand what you're doing? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I, I love the Moffat complex ideas and scripts, but for people that are trying to get on board, like we're saying there for, as, a, as a human being, just a normal human person, girl, man, whatever, it's difficult when the timelines are all over the place. you're like, well, what? Yeah. Both yeah.
5: People, I think. Yeah, I think the next companion needs to be like series one, Rose, really. Yeah. You know, before she turns into bad wolf. <laughs>
3: or even So, like you yeah, know, like
5: just an ordinary person. Even
3: Martha. Because Martha, like... Yeah. She's, she's fine. bog yeah. standard, straight out of the box. This is a companion. Yeah. Off you go. Donna Noble, again. I mean, Donna's my favourite companion in the new series, line, And people usually chastise me for this. But, yeah, yeah. no, I just think something about her, like, uh, you know, as a character, really good. And that's... I think that sort of... That was a good balance between the two. Tennant and um, Tate, it was just, it was very equal, I thought, with them two.
5: Yeah, and they kind of, when you take the romance element out, I still think the show works better that
3: way. It does. And I think that was a kind of a happy medium. You had one person, it was, yeah, I think that's what it is as well, because with Martha, it was kind of unrequited love. With mm. Rose, it was like, should or shouldn't I? Should so I think, yeah, probably the love aspect is a big part of it, why it sort of gets a bit confuddled, if you like. And then just making them go through your entire time stream. Yeah, I just, it's another level. level, isn't it, really? So. Yeah, it's, it's hard to get on board mm. halfway through all
5: that, I guess. Yeah. Mm. Well, there we go. Mm. Well, Bob, I think that's us for this month. Yes. Looking at the clock. Yep, enjoyed the natter. Yes, thank you, so did I. It was uh, very enjoyable. I hope you enjoyed it, uh, the listener at home. Indeed. and it's a uh, goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me, and uh, we'll talk to you next month. Indeedy.
0: Welcome to Who Tigs Roadshow, I'm here this episode with Brendan
7: Jones from Flight Through Entirety How are you Brendan? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm recovering from a cold at the moment so I do apologise to your listeners if I burst into a coughing fit And also for listeners of Flight Through Entirety, uh, no I don't usually sound this sexy but thanks for noticing
0: <laughs> Yes, we were going to record this listeners closer to the witching hour this evening But we're uh, recording it earlier in the evening so Brendan can rest his voice afterwards and maybe get some sleep
7: That's right, I mean, uh, I am actually uh, usually out this time on a Friday night, not partying and living it up, but um, at wrestling training, because I do Olympic freestyle wrestling, so um, there's something for your listeners. Well, there's something we didn't know straight away in the first (laughs) that's not even the first minute. Gosh,
0: (laughs) this is going to be a cracker. (laughs) All right, how's uh, Flight Through Entirety going at the moment?
7: Uh, we're going very well. So, uh, currently, we are in the midst of season 18. So, Tom Baker's final season. We've uh, released uh, a little over 70 episodes now. So, we've got about, I think it's about 56 until we get to the telemovie. And uh, current plans are we will continue into the new series. Uh, but that may see some uh, slight changes in the format as well. To, you know, because we'll be going into new territory. So, yeah, mm-hmm. we've been doing it. About two years now. I've figured out our Tom Baker retrospective will come out in our second anniversary week. So that's uh, somewhat appropriate, I think. Oh, fantastic.
0: Yes, I noticed. I think I'm up
7: to hearing you talk about Megloss. Yes, that was, um, that was our episode released last week as we record. I'm not sure what will be out um, when, when this episode comes out, but uh, yes, our, our Meg episode where, spoiler alert, we spend about half the duration just talking about how wonderful Jacqueline Hill is. <laughs> well, she is. Yes, exactly. You know, no problem there. Alright then, this
0: is Who Teaks Roadshow, so you've, you've got something for us to look at today. What, what have
7: you brought in? Well, uh, what I've brought in is the uh, I believe initially released in 1988 mm-hmm. uh, Daypole TARDIS co- uh, TARDIS console room set. Ooh. So, um, this comes with several pieces. It comes with uh, the fabulous Daypole TARDIS console with its five sides. <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, it comes with a Mel figure in the pink blouse. Yes. And a Beige-coated Sylvester McCoy, although really this action figure, he's a grey-coated Sylvester McCoy. It was, yeah. yes. <laughs> and um, infamously a green canine. Oh, yes. Because, um, now I gather the reason for this was, uh, Daypole, of course, were an English company more known for designing model railways. That's right, yes. And model railway sets. Uh, but uh, producer John Nathan Turner farmed out the action figure rights, discovered there was a company in England keen to break into the action figure market. Uh, Daypole did their manufacturing in France I believe, and so the reference materials for the figures were sent to people who'd never seen Doctor Who before <laughs> and the photos they had of K9 were from K9 and Company where he's out on the grass Yep. so his, um, his shell was reflecting the grass and that's why we got this green K9 who I believe was only released in this set I may be wrong on that, he may have been released individually as well the set comes with a, uh, a TARDIS exterior, police box exterior, which folds out to form the backing for the console. The console itself sits on a little grey floor, which K9 has a track he can run around on. And I believe that my console room set comes from a, a later version because it has an additional piece. It has a piece of backing for the TARDIS control room. So rather than sort of have the two halves of the TARDIS as a concertina effect, you can have it in a U shape. And I, I am told that only came in with the second edition. The box is rather a thing of beauty as well, because it's a, it's a window box, yes. uh, very plain polystyrene on the inside that holds all the pieces in place. And uh, But there's a wonderful diagram on the side. So it has the uh, Sylvester McCoy Doctor Who logo, uh, Node, I'm told, is the asteroid logo. I didn't know that at the time. Uh, oh. It's got the TARDIS. There's got the TARDIS in its bubble. It's got 25th anniversary commemorative set, and it has the two most bored and disappointed looking children ever to play with toys ever pictured <laughs> on the front. Um, I'm I'm guessing again. This is because. Uh, partially because the set may have been designed in Spain These children may not have had any idea what Doctor Who was And we're just, <laughs> and we're just looking at this uh, diorama playset With battery operated console and flashing lights mm. um, With a mixture of um, disdain and, uh, and uh, very much credulity
0: Now if, if you'd like to see this box viewers um, And see <laughs> these children If you go to Toys.net forward Mm. slash daypole.htm, you'll see uh, both the playset and the box, actually, with all the the gear in it.
7: That is a a wonderful website, Doctor Who (laughs)
0: Toys.net. Yeah, it's it's not the most flashy of websites. It looks like it was made around, you know, 1997 or so. But the information in it and the pictures (laughs) are very, very useful, especially when it comes to Daypole, as they made so many variations of different things, especially Daleks, but we'll probably get to that in a moment. Yes, it did I guess the first question that comes to mind is whether you own this back in the day or whether you you've bought it in more recent years
7: No, I didn't own it back in the day. Um, I did own some daypole figures when I was a kid, and I remember I got my first daypole figure. I believe it was nineteen ninety and Nicholas Courtney was out here for a convention, the brigadier yes and there's actually a photo in existence of me dressed as the Brigadier at seven years old. And um, <laughs> I i do slightly remember Nicholas Courtney being very pleased by that. And years later, uh, I picked up this set when I lived, lived in the UK for four years. In 2008, shortly after I first arrived in the UK, I went to a convention with Nicholas Courtney. Oh, wow. And I was lining up to get my autographs and put down my photo and said, oh, Nicholas, could you please sign this to Brendan? And he said, oh, I detect an Australian accent. I haven't been to Australia in years. I went to a convention there in 1990. I said, yes, I know I was there. And he looked at me for a moment. He said, you were dressed as me and you had a moustache of makeup pencil. <laughs> wow. And it was true. It was it, My moustache my was my mother's makeup pencil. And um, he said... I, I, I've i always remembered that because no no other children that young were into Doctor Who at the time. You know, I'm sure that wasn't true. But it it was so touching to me that he remembered that. Anyway, getting back to day poll, At that convention, my parents bought me a uh, Sylvester McCoy action figure, which they told me to be very, very careful with. But as we were walking through, I'm pretty sure the convention took place at Sydney University. I dropped him. And uh, the lower half of one of his arms just shattered. And, uh, yeah, so my parents uh, refused to buy me another one. I later found out that even then those figures cost $20 Australian. And when you consider that now they're about 30 you know, adjust that for inflation, they were quite expensive. So uh, mum and dad didn't buy me another one, so I learned to treasure him. And I had a similarly broken um, Remembrance Dalek, which I think was a hand-me-down from a friend, and it had no arms. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So that that was the extent of my of my Doctor Who Daypole toys as a child, because so Flash. I, I was just
0: going to say go they ahead. they were very fragile things. I mean, they weren't the most well made mm-hmm. things. They weren't you know GI Joe quality or Star Wars figure quality, um, and it's very easy to break. You know, the bottom half of an arm off, or maybe a leg, and 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 whatnot.
7: But, yes, um, yes. Even my current collection, um, there've there've been a few casualties because they live on the top shelf and are sometimes blown off by a breeze. So one of my um one of my limited edition Daleks, sadly, the um the blue and silver Dalek, which I think came with a copy of the five doctors on VHS sold through boots, um had its arm <laughs> had its plunger arm knocked off. I you know, I did I did my research. Um I, I Anyway. Can tell. But- <laughs> Flash forward to uh, two thousand and eight. Yes. When I moved to the UK, and I already had a small collection of the new Doctor Who uh, new series Doctor Who action figures from uh, Character Options. But of course, moving to the UK, you know, I could suddenly get these figures for ten pounds. Yeah. And working as I was there, and the school I was working in, um, the bus route from my home to the school went past a Toys R Us. Oh right and a mu- and a month after i arrived character options released their first wave of classic doctor who action figures oh, so great tom times. peter colin yeah so over the course of 4 years i amassed a collection of the character options ones of about 250 figures <laughs> i thought i was bad <laughs> <laughs> now the thing is um, when the matt smith first matt smith year came out the the action figures aside from matt smith and karen gillan um, and the New Daleks, the the action figures were very sort of lacklustre. You know, you had Francesco the Vampire, mm-hmm. and you had the Winders, <laughs> and you had Prisoner Zero. So I got rid of a lot of my new series stuff, except for sort of Companions, Silorians, etc, etc. But at around that point, I started collecting the Daypole stuff again. Mm-hmm. What inspired you to do that? Well, I when when I decided to stop collecting the new series stuff, I sort of thought about, well, what what am I actually collecting these for? And I realized I still wanted to collect the classic stuff. And by that time, there'd been two regular waves of classic figures, and then the rest were coming out as limited edition box sets from Forbidden Planet. Mm. So um, over here, we mostly get those through um, pop culture in Australia, who are run by, I think, Icon Collectibles. And because it was the classics that I was really drawn to, I realized it was more a matter of these were the toys I wanted to have as a child. And a lot uh, a lot of people who aren't into collecting action figures have said to me, you know, oh, but they're, they're kids' toys. And I, I sort of think, well, you know, other people put um, paintings on their walls or are very interested in photography and put their own photographs on their wall. This is the same kind of thing to me. It's just a visual pop, a visual decoration, if you like, that has an emotional meaning. Absolutely. And with the day poles, I looked into how many they made, and I thought, well, here's a relatively finite collection as you alluded to earlier there were lots of different promotional daleks made but in terms of the base collection if you like there were about 35 to 40 and so i thought well here's something i can get the base set of relatively inexpensively mm-hmm. and you know there, there were still shops in london that still had massive supplies of of all the different colored time lords there were four official variations of time lords there was uh there was burgundy, yes. there was grey, there was brown, and... Oh, the other one escapes me for the moment. I know the figures you <laughs> mean, though. They they weren't the most interesting or inspiring action figures. No, no. And, well, the, the funny thing was, and it kind of tied into the new adventures at the time, the Time Lords all had the same face as Sylvester McCoy, just with black lipstick. <laughs> yes. So, I started collecting the odd one or two here or there. Now... Some of them, sort of your uh, Sylvester McCoys, Seven Doctor's, your Aces, your Mel's, and some of the basic Daleks, you could get for about £10. Some of the others, especially the later ones, uh, were quite rare. So things like the uh, early model Cyberman mm. and uh, the Melka, for instance, both um, beautiful figures, but again extremely rare and they were going for about forty pounds, so about a hundred Australian dollars. And very often that was quite loose as well.
2: Mm.
7: You had to be you had to be quite canny. And I sort of said to myself, you know, I want to get everything, but I don't want to bankrupt myself. Yeah, I don't see any point in that. Mm -hmm. So I started I started collecting these. I think I got a small um, a small batch of about ten for about forty pounds off an eBay auction. Very good. And off the top of my head I couldn't tell you what they were. But one night, I was trawling eBay uh, when I was living in the UK, and I came across a day lot. And the asking price was, according to my PayPal records, uh, £300. And this lot included the, uh, the boxed console room set, we were, which we were discussing earlier, the boxed Daleks the Early Years set, which contained a, um, a regular Dalek, a, um, a Ranger Scope Dalek from the Chase, a Pyroflame Dalek from the Daleks Master Plan and an Embryo-carrying Dalek from Power of the Daleks. It also contained about 20 loose figures, only uh, 10 of which I had, and these included a boxed early Cyberman figure, which, as I mentioned earlier, went for £40 pounds on its own. Yeah. Now, this lot for £300, pounds, I did some research, and at the time... Uh, There were only, I think, two other boxed console room sets going both for £250 on their own. And the early Dalek set was going for £100 on its own. So even before the loose figures, I was about £90 ahead of the deal. Yeah. Now, I seem to recall, I think it was an auction. Because I had to set an alarm for 4:50 in the morning <laughs> <laughs> to be the final bidder on it. We've all uh, been there, but yes, I, <laughs> uh, but yes, that did lead to me um, to me winning it and it arriving. And I um, I sent you through some photos earlier that I took shortly after it arrived. And uh, p- please feel free to share those on your website or with your listeners. Will do. Um, but uh, yeah, and the the set itself is in very good condition. The rotor in the console doesn't go up and down, but it does light up. Mm-hmm. And I'm told that the repair job to get it to go up and down is actually rather simple. I've just never bothered. I was going to say it's interesting um, for listeners out
0: there that the the console does light up and and does go up and down in in when it's in you know pristine condition. Mm. It, it it can though get stuck and get the wobbles, much like the real
7: prop. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. quite funny. (laughs) And uh, much like the prop of the 70s, it's actually incredibly loud. Mm -hmm. I I have seen a working one, and um, this may not be true, but I gather that uh, when um, John Nathan-Turner was shown the prototype, the company were very worried about how he would react because they'd worked very hard to try to make the motor silent, but they just couldn't. And they said to him, well, look, we can drop the rising and falling aspect. And he just said, "Well, no, we'll just market the sound as being the sound of the TARDIS." <laughs> That's it sounds G&T. nothing like it. It sounds nothing like it. You, you know, um, some questionable decisions there, that man. But you have to admire his gall. Oh yeah, <laughs>
0: definitely. When life gives um, you lemons, make lemonade.
7: <laughs> exactly, exactly. But yeah, I do. I do rather adore it, especially seeing as uh, unfortunately character options uh, haven't been able to make a, uh, a classic series console room set for reasons of cost you know basically um they for instance they molded a a bessie uh character options and it was seen at several toy fairs but there wasn't enough interest from um sellers to stock a bessie unfortunately and well when you look at the matt smith era console room which i also have there's no sound and lights on that where there previously was for the uh david tennant console room Mm. that's my biggest regret is when I first moved to the UK, I didn't have um, a lot of room in the place I lived. The Toys R Us was selling David Tennant console room for £20 oh. as an end-of-item, and uh, that, that was the week that I bought about 20 action figures. <laughs> I'll send you that photo as well. <laughs> Please do. It's me, it's me sitting on the ground next to this pile of action figures that's taller than me, but I thought, I'll come back and get that next week. Mm, mm. and it was gone it would be yeah
0: it's the way yeah what so,
7: and you know those david Tennant sets go for oh at least 150 200 pounds now i haven't looked it makes me cry quite yeah, frankly yeah. <laughs> oh
0: look we all have stories like that i can remember when toys r us out here had the uh the 12 inch tenant dolls um wearing the cloth suits and and so on. They weren't the best likeness or anything. They were something to be played mm-hmm. with. And and they were knocking them down and getting them out the door at like about 20 bucks. I think they had the doctor and Martha and you know maybe there were some other figures. I think they did a Matt Smith with a beard in the same scale as well. Mm-hmm. And uh they got rid of those at crazy prices. I wish I'd just gone and bought like 10 of each, you know.
7: <laughs> well, I did I did get and I hesitate to say lucky because it's a terrible thing. I did get lucky uh, at the closure of the ABC shops and I am going to miss the ABC shops dreadfully I did work in several for about five years and I think it's such a shame that they're going mm. um, well indeed I think by this point have gone I think uh, the last one in New South Wales was uh, East Gardens and yeah I think that's gone now but um, I just wandered into the QVB one when it was closing down and picked up the new 5 inch Capaldi figures for eight twenty-five each so I picked up uh, the two I was missing for myself and two for uh, Richard from Flight Through Entirety. He has been discussing grinding one down to make it into a John Steed from the Avengers. <laughs> I, I bought him some Idruses that he's attempting to turn into Sarah Jane Smiths. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, I trust him, he's an architect. Um, yes. Oh, and one other thing about my daypaw collection. Yes and i think it was part of this job lot and i'm not sure the buyer quite knew what he had uh, are you familiar with the davros story with the hands of the davros figure with the hands so with the, the hands, first yeah. Dav- <laughs> the first davros figure that um that daypol made uh, had two hands That's and right. of course um, davros only has one hand and so the um most of the davros figures sold by uh daypol have a very hastily chopped off with scissors, <laughs> hand. Later on, they did adjust the mould, so it actually was a proper end. But, you know, some people have just this very straight edge stump, if you like. Um, <laughs> For the listeners ha- out there, this was a
0: very cottage industry, tiny yes. factory. <laughs> oh, God, we yes, made a was- mistake. Chop it off with scissors kind of, <laughs> kind of thing. It's hard to believe in the days of character options where... I still can't believe the character options classic series figures even exist at all, to be honest, you know.
7: It, it, if you had have said to me at seven years old when I was clutching that one-armed Sylvester McCoy daypole figure, there is going to come a time when this will look terrible. Mm. You will have something much, much better and you'll be able to swap the heads. <laughs> you know, I, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have realised that. But I do have a two-armed daypole Davros Wow. That I got as part of this set because they only realised their mistake once they'd released it, and fans wrote in saying, "You do realise that <laughs> this is um, completely now, wrong." Yeah. yeah, not only that, but it came in um, it came in the box, mm-hmm. so I had the box for it as well. But um, uh, Daypole went through several phases of packaging. There's uh, black packaging, for instance, which has an image of the um, of the character depicted. That was the first round. Um, Then there was a rainbow set of packaging, which has the TARDIS and the diamond logo. And finally, there was a resealable clamshell package, Mm. uh, which was around uh, the mid-90s, I think, when they were reissuing a lot of stuff, possibly post-fire. But, uh, yeah, my my Davros and my early Cybermen both come in this resealable packaging, so you aren't able to take them out of the box. Mind you, I take almost everything out of the box anyway. I don't... I don't hold with this idea of keeping things in boxes for the most part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very good. More people should
0: do that, I think. <laughs> now, one thing we mentioned earlier, and we, and we should come back to it, because time is running short. Daleks. They made an awful lot of Daleks. More Daleks probably than I can count. Have you managed to, to track down all the variations?
7: Well, uh, I believe that I have. Now, just looking on the shelf behind me, I can see... I have grey with black spots. I have black with silver spots. I have black with gold spots. I have all gold. I have cream with um, gold spots. Mm -hmm. I have red with gold, red with silver, and uh, another red with silver from here. I'll be back in a moment. Okay.
0: (laughs) And Brendan is just going over to his bookshelf and having a look. What else can he find?
7: Okay, I'm back. I have red I have red with black and I have gray with blue. I also have blue with silver which is one of the aforementioned special edition ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so I believe I have the entire base set, if you like. So the ones that were released, the ones that were released separately carded in shops. Mm. Uh, having a look here on the uh, RichardWho.com Daypole Project site, uh, they have a complete listing, and there are some wonderful colours of Dalek. There was a pink Dalek with purple spots mm-hmm. for breast cancer awareness. Yes. Uh, there was an all-silver Dalek. There was an all-black Dalek. There was a red, white, and blue US-exclusive Dalek. That was the most bizarre one, I think. <laughs> well... You say that, but there was also the uh, green Dalek with, uh, with gold dome and red spots released for Christmas. And uh, there were the, uh, the glitter millennium Daleks. Oh, that's do you, right. Do you know of these? I've seen uh, them, uh, yes. Yep, there were six Daleks, and uh, they were in blue, green, gold, purple, red, and silver. Uh, I have the silver and green ones Mm -hmm. and uh, they were only 2,000 of each produced and uh, I believe there was a um, yeah, there were proof of purchase coupons on the boxes and if you mailed those in you got a special display box for them sent out to you. (laughs) Nice. Pretty much I think when they had the fire, the Dalek moulds were one of the things that survived or were easy to produce and so Whenever someone wanted a special thing, so, for instance, uh, the Breast Cancer Research Dalek or Boots wanted a particular Dalek to go with a re-release of The Five Doctors or a convention wanted a Dalek, um, they would come up with a new colour scheme, even if it had never been seen on television. (laughs) They did produce a couple of uh, Peter Cushing-style Daleks, which pretty much just swapped out the plunger for the claw. Mm. They also uh, bought the rights to and re-released Louis Marx Daleks from the 60s
0: right now
7: though those i don't have any of they're still quite expensive and because they weren't really part of my childhood i haven't had as much interest that makes sense in in getting those but yeah i mean you know i look at these and there's there was a transmat dalek which was a clear one actually i may have one of those somewhere i'm not sure is that the one Um, you can see the mutant inside you can see the mutant and they even did different colors of mutants and to this day Um, so for instance the brown mutant was exclusive to the USA but apparently there were other ones like there was a light green one, there was a yellow one there was apparently a clear one and apparently that was just whatever dye they had at the time Mm -hmm. ended up (laughs) being that
0: yes folks, it was that kind of
4: operation
7: (laughs) you know, that's what I find so charming about it because it continued for almost 10 years after Doctor Who went off the air oh yeah and their license was only revoked in, I think, 1998, mm. which was when, the B- um, in the wake of the telemovie, the BBC were taking back all their licenses. So the Virgin New Adventures ended, these toys ended, and really we didn't have another line of action figures until character options in uh, 2005. And it's weird. This represents the end of an era when the BBC didn't care about the program. Yeah. You know, it was by sheer force of uh, the creative influences at the time. So, um, the production team who had wanted to get action figures off the ground since um, Peter Davison—it's why none of his companions ever changed their clothes. That's right, because it, there were going to be action figures.
0: That's right. I mean, it's why his costume was the way it was. That
7: they were the doctors were put in into costumes because they were more marketable. You know, exactly, exactly. And Daypole, there seemed to be a lot of passion there as well because Daypole. When their figures were cancelled, they had prototypes of a William Hartnell, mm-hmm. a Yeti, yeah. a Ben and a Polly. Yeah. And they even had on the drawing board a Colin Baker, which had been put to the back burner because it would be too hard to paint. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Quite understandably. But, you know, there was there was a lot of projects going on. The De- um, Daypol, uh, the New Adventures, production companies like um, BBV, which were entirely driven by passion. Mm-hmm. And I, I think character options is driven by a lot of very passionate Doctor Who fans in the same way. Aldoar, um, who quite famously will sometimes share photos of prototypes uh, from his role at character options, is a very passionate fan himself. Yeah. And yeah, to me, that's, I mean, I was passionate about these figures as a kid because they were unattainable. And having is not so pleasing a thing as wanting. Yes. But having these is still pretty damn cool. Oh
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I agree. And look, before we get to pricing, one last question, <laughs> and and I think you've probably already answered this in in what you've just been saying. Do you think the day poll figures are a reflection of where the show was at in the late eighties, both in terms of the passion with which the people involved were making it, but also maybe the lack of interest the BBC had it in other ways? It all sort of comes
7: together almost in this action figure range. Would you agree with that? I definitely agree with that, and also I think the kind of the make-do-and-mend element of it. I always find it quite interesting that John Nathan Turner, his raison d'etre coming into the program was to get rid of this feeling that it'll do because it's Doctor Who. Yet by the end of his time, he had to kind of settle, in a way, for a lot less than what he wanted. Mm. Now, and I say that as someone who loves the Sylvester McCoy era and loves Colin Baker's performance as the Doctor... But there were a lot of situation. There were a lot of circumstances outside of any of their controls. To me, yeah, the Daypole range kind of represents that as well. It's like you know what, we can't make something that'll compete with the Star Wars figures, but we are going to make the best product we can make, Mm. and hope that people enjoy it. And people very clearly did enjoy it. And I think part of that enjoyment for Doctor Who fans. As well is that we can take the mick out of the five-sided TARDIS console and the green canine (laughs) and the fact that if they hadn't stopped making Mel's if Bonnie Langford had stayed in the program we probably would have had a whole Power Rangers gamut of Mel's because we've got the pink Mel we've got the blue Mel we would have had the red Mel and the yellow Mel and whole uh, rainbow of Mel's. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, original Power Rangers, the black Mel, and maybe the green Mel. You know, actually, that's quite tempting, because Mel is a particular favourite of mine, and Time and the Rani is the first story I recorded off the TV. Is that right? <laughs> wow. I actually, I actually have upcoming in two different books, um, Who uh, You on Target and Hating to Love, two separate essays talking about Time and the Rani. Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much in both cases Both cases the editor said Who actually wants to talk about time and the running am like, ooh me, I do
0: <laughs> Now, um, do you it's... have both the target novels With one with the upside down cover And one without?
7: I don't have the upside down cover With the Ted Kaps
0: but... upside Well the right <laughs> way up I should say
7: Yes, yes, <laughs> I don't have the upside down cover I do have the um, the proper paperback cover I mean the upside down cover also had the neon logo on it mm. As I seem to recall but no, I've got, I've got the, um, the proper version, and I actually reread the novelization for you on Target. And, got, you know, lo- love or hate their, their use of language, you cannot fault Pip and Jane Baker on their enthusiasm.
1: <laughs> Very true. Very it has true.
7: been a long time since I've read something with so many exclamation marks.
0: <laughs> well, I'll be joining you and you on Target. I've taken the five doctors. Oh,
7: lucky you. Did you get to read it before broadcast? No, no.
0: Many, many years afterwards. (laughs) There's a whole story about that, but that's going to be in the book. Oh, I look forward to it. (laughs) All right, let's move on to price, because we're at the end of the segment. I I struggled to find any of these for sale at the moment. I ended up finding one, and it's someone flogging the console, a grey canine, ace, a Sylvester in a brown jacket... And the, the the full TARDIS, which of course you can pull apart to make the walls, doesn't have the uh the base that K9 can run around or anything like that. So I'm I'm wondering if this has been cobbled together out of bits and pieces mm. or something. I'm I'm not too sure. It's in the UK and they and there's no box at all either. They want £175 or about 320 Aussie. Goodness. So for you to have something in a box, all the proper <laughs> figures, the green K9. You know, I think it's appreciated quite well from what you would have paid.
7: Yes, yes, I think so too. And and you wanna know something? In all my research I never found any indication that this was re released after its initial boxing. So I think I think you're right, I think that is cobbled together
0: yeah yeah and, and yeah and i think for the 25th anniversary it, w- it wouldn't have been it was it was a one-off mm. you know mm. yeah that's right so look thank you so much for bringing it in and uh chatting about it i think we could have probably cracked on and talked about character options for an hour or two after this but uh <laughs> time being what it is i think uh i think that's been a fascinating chat on Daypole.
7: my pleasure thank you very much for having me rob cheers
8: welcome to the tardis
3: library a place to talk comics Novels, audios, and more from the worlds of Doctor
9: Who. Hi, this is Matt Barber. I occasionally appear on the Blue Box podcast with J.R. Southall, Simon Breath and Lee Rawlings. Rob's accidentally asked me to contribute to his podcast to look at Titan Comics' latest offering, which is a new ongoing Ninth Doctor series written by Kevin Scott, uh, with Adriana Mello as the uh, artist. I really like this. It's I didn't think I was going to like it. I've, uh, so my, cred- my credentials as a, a comic strip critic are fairly limited. Um, my main experience of comic strips are the famous Alan Moore strips, but also the comics in the Doctor Who magazine, Doctor Who Weekly. I, I kind of grew up with those. Um, so this is kind of new and fresh, which is quite exciting. This one features uh, the Night Doctor with the Rose and Captain Jack team from around Boom time. It ties in a lot to that series. Uh, there are references to Captain Jack's lost time, uh, which was never, never expanded on. Uh, there references to the Time War as well. So uh, the story starts with them uh, being drawn by a message from, um, from Captain Jack, an alternative Captain Jack, sometime during his lost minutes, his lost days. And they're drawn to a planet where the Doctor is bizarrely some sort of celebrity to the point where there is a Doctor Who fan club. The Doctor Who Appreciation Society exists on this planet. Um, the first alien they encounter is a purple three-eyed girl who's a member of the Doctor Who Appreciation Society. She's interested in taking selfies with the Doctor and and also uh, getting autographs and various other things. Then uh, then the story develops uh, the Chumblies attack, Chumblies from Galaxy 5, which is very, very strange, a really weird collision of, of old elements and new elements, except these aren't the Chumblies we know from Galaxy 5. These are souped-up, flying Chumblies, which raises the Doctor's suspicion. And then the Doctor in this world appears, identical to Eccleston, but flying the who which is, again, a really weird, weird, kitschy thing to bring back, which I think is done on purpose. The Doctor and the alternative Doctor have a kind of a a tussle, and and, uh, Rose disappears off, and eventually uh, she ends up encountering The alternative doctor's companion, Penny, which was, of course, one of uh, Russell T Davies' alternate ideas to Donna. And then the final revelation, which I won't reveal, is Rose is finally threatened by the the true nature of the alternative doctor. So all that sounds quite complicated. That's because it is. It's a very involved story uh, that draws heavily from elements of the past. The main things that sprung to my mind were there's clearly a a depiction of Doctor Who fandom in here, which is slightly parodic in the way that it was in both The Greatest Show in the Galaxy and Love of Monsters. Um, And like those episodes, it treads a fine line between cruelty and parody, but somehow manages to, to stay the right side of that line. It's also quite interesting to see Eccleston's Doctor engaging in this parody of fandom considering uh, Eccleston clearly prefers to engaging with individuals uh, from the time he's not frightened of being involved with Doctor Who fans but he's not engaging with Doctor Who fandom with a big F Um, so it's it's interesting to, to see that happening in a fictional form. What's also interesting for me is this feels like a continuation of Eccleston's series, as if an an imagination of what would happen if Eccleston went for a second series. This very much feels like series two elements combined with series one. So it takes place on an alien planet, which you wouldn't have had in series one. So it feels almost like New Earthy, but with Eccleston in it. And also I quite like the way that it develops certain mysteries from the first series that weren't developed in real life or weren't developed for quite a long time. So the reference to the Time War definitely roots it into some sort of broader mythology and references to, to Captain Jack's missing time. I I really like that. That made it feel quite grounded to me. Overall, the story moves from revelation to revelation, which is very satisfying. It it doesn't let up. Uh, you never know, quite know where you stand with it. Uh, every time you think you've you've grasped What's going on here? Then something happens, like the humabiel turning up, which is another key moment in this. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing moment, and also I think it's a, a comment on, or it could be perceived as a comment on, how things are brought back from the original series and souped up. So the the Chumblies, for instance, are very much like you would you would see with the the fine Daleks or even the new Paradigm Daleks being brought back, souped up. But in this case, it happens in the fictional world, and the doctor doesn't recognise. The doctor recognises there's something wrong with them. With the Hummobile, the concept is so kitschy and so ridiculous from from its original appearance that to see it reintroduced almost suggests that they're they're parodying the the introduction in the second series of things like K Nine, I think. But as I say, the the story the story really propels you forward because of these twists. I also thought I also quite liked the way that it's clearly building up a, a bigger story. So there are references to things that have happened unseen in the past, and also broader things to for the future. So it's building up a very new series story arc, which I find quite quite satisfying. There's also obviously uh, nods to to what ifs. So um, so with Penny, uh, there's also quite a nice a nice subtle reference to the genesis of the Daleks through some of the dialogue. In terms of how it looks. It's it's strange. I don't get much of a sense of of the world this takes place in the alien world. There are no sort of wide panning the wide panning shots, that would be a film thing, but but long shots. It's all very close up. And again, I, I get the feeling this is a bit like you would see in the in the television series. This is an alien planet as you would see in that first series. So effectively filmed on location in cardiff with close-ups of buildings and everybody just saying this is an alien planet with the occasional alien walking past so it's it's almost frightened to give you a a wide shot which actually i i don't mind so much because I, i quite like the feeling that it's actually grounding you with with this kind of reference to the series and reference to the style and look of the series. The likenesses are really good and they're to my taste, so they're quite realistic. They're, they aren't very stylized. Particularly impressive is the fact that there are two versions of the Christopher Eccleston Doctor and they're very distinctive. You can you can certainly tell the difference even when they appear on the, the same page. So overall, the look's very satisfying. Uh, the twist at the end, the cliffhanger, was, was very well done and does make me want to to carry on and and read the next one i'm more, and as i said i'm i'm really impressed with the way it takes the russell t davis burgeoning connections with the original series and it kind of tweaks them and expands on them and in some ways satirizes them uh, i th- i think that's that's exactly what these these kind of these kind of texts should do these comics that are written after the event should do i think they should both Uh, provide a commentary on the series, but also a reflection of the series. So overall, I'm very impressed, and I'm looking forward to the next installment.
10: Hello, I'm back. Finally. I'm here to do some reviews. I'm catching up because my social life got ahead of me last month. So yeah, I'm Lex. I'm going to be doing the 11th Doctor comic reviews on issue 2.6 and 2.7. All right, so... 2.6, we had um, Rob Williams and Cy Spurrier for the writers. And for the artists, we had Warren Please and the colorist was Hi-Fi. The letterer was Comicraft to get you an idea if you are familiar with these people. So there you have it. I feel like I always do an awful job introducing these comics. So cheers to self-improvement. Okay, so here we go. I'm just going to read aloud the previously section, like the previously ellipses, um, in the section of the comic to you guys because I don't remember the issue before 2.6 very well. Um, so here we go, all right? This is for you and me. The overcast blamed the doctor for the death of their people and hired the then and the now, a temporal bounty hunter, to punish him, unable to shake this impossible tale. This is true, it is rather impossible. It's been a couple issues now that this temporal bounty hunter has been chasing them down. And by a couple, I mean at least three. It's it's quite a long chase. So, yes, unable to shake this impossible tale, the Doctor, Alice, and their unlikely passengers ventured to worlds devastated by the time war to try and prove his innocence. Yay! But when a lone white pillar keeps cropping up, This time, as the emblem of a renegade faction of Suntarans at war with their own kind. Uh, The doctor believes he knows who framed him, dot dot dot, Someone masterful. Um, And the master is italicized. As such, he's going to need the help of a dear old friend, Professor Riversong, exclamation point. He just has to break her out of prison first, dot dot dot. Okay, so... Here we go. Here is River Song. She's right there on the first page. um, A big picture of her. Except, guess what? (laughs) It's not really her at the same time. Because on the next page over, they've drawn someone completely different. It's this... Maybe, like, she could be 80 years old. um, And her hair color is wrong. It's this light brown. Um, Really, it looks nothing like her at all. And it's disturbing. It does get better though, maybe in the, the the next two pages up? no it's the next page. She she does start to look more like herself, thank goodness. For a little bit. Uh, it's it's it wavers quite a bit, and I know artists are at liberty to make changes in style, but not to the point in some of these. I think it really did drift quite quite a ways from you know, where they're supposed to draw the line of what style and what's a completely different person. So no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Moving on to what is actually going on in the story, the breakout of the prison that the, the, they spoke about in the previous section takes about, let's see, one, two, three, four, I think I'll say five pages It's actually pretty darn easy. They kind of built up for a very simple escape. Because all they do is use the Dr. Sonic screwdriver. Although it does look like somebody um, shot some tranquilizing darts into the guards. But it's never shown who does it. Unless it was done in the previous issue, but I don't think so. They just kind of have a, a slide of the TARDIS taking off and two guards with darts in their necks. So odd. Moving on, another odd thing that happens. River um says this line, go on, do it for me. You know you want to, she says. And the doctor gives her this look that's like, it's kind of creepy for the doctor to give not just River, but anyone really. Like, yeah, I know you do want me to. It's um kind of like the doctor acting like some kind of player, like, or flirty, or something just along the lines that's just not right. The, the doctor doesn't flirt like that with River, it doesn't give her looks like that. And this thing that River wants the doctor to do, flirtatiously wants to do, I should say, is snap his fingers to open up the TARDIS door. And honestly, since when River even liked the doctor doing that? If anything, I think she would roll her eyes or. I don't ever remember that being an inside joke between them, so I guess, what am I on, like, complaint number 10, ugh, it really isn't that bad. Um, I should move on into the storyline. So the reason – the next part they go into is the reason as to why the doctor needs the help of an old friend. River Song, of course, has the journal of everything that has happened in the doctor's past or future. um, And he needs her help to explain what's going on because he has no memory of ever – committing genocide. Yeah, he doesn't have any memory of committing genocide. And he doesn't have any memory of meeting the Squire, actually, either. So that's another character. In case you're not familiar, the Squire is um, a character that they just kind of picked up, who apparently was an old companion of the Doctor, but the Doctor has no memory of this Squire. And unfortunately, neither does the Squire. She has no memory of herself at all, just kind of a general knowledge that she was a companion of the Doctor. So it's, it's interesting. I like the plot, and I love that River Song is back, and I think they do a pretty good job with getting their personalities. Or actually, instead I should say attitudes. I think they project their attitudes, sort of their, their swag, their charms, well. It felt like River and the Doctor, even if, as I'm about to get into, I disagreed with what they said. For instance... They have this intimate moment where River Song is trying to comfort the doctor in his state of uncertainty. You know, it it is somewhat unnerving to be accused of genocide and to have a companion that you just don't remember. And he's asking to look inside the journal and River Song comforts him, which is great, except for the way that she does it. So I just went from positive to negative again, she goes through this speech of how... I'll just read it aloud. She says, Doctor, holding up her TARDIS journal, I have read this book cover to cover many times, and here's what I know for a fact. Whatever this crime you are supposed to have committed is, you did not commit it. You've allowed yourself to be weakened by doubt when your usual language is certainty. So... If you do need to see how the path ahead is mapped out, dot, 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 big slide of their heads close together, the doctor in a painful, mournful uh, state of mind, holding the book in his hand, the real reason you came to me, question mark, you needed to see someone who knows you, who will look you in the eye and tell you that you're good, read it if you have to. But I'll miss the smartest man in the room unraveling his mysteries. There ends that scene. Okay, so many problems with this. Because it's becoming a pattern now that the writers have this fixation on the 11th Doctor being a know-it-all. A pompous, arrogant, big-headed know-it-all who prioritizes being certain over actually being honest about the situation honest about his level of knowledge and understanding of the situation um it's incredible they do this quite frequently i wish they would stop i hate that they are framing the doctor like not only framing the doctor in this way but also um here i go again it's so easy to visualize the cranky old lady i'm going to become one day You know, there are little kids that are reading these comics that are going to be molded by this type of value setting. That if you're going to be a good person, you should be like the doctor and be confident even though you have no idea what's going on. Prioritizing confidence over honest assessment of life. It is a bad idea. And another reason why I hate it so much, this is River Song we're talking about, an extremely important character, and they have her saying this line and actually making her literally in the drawing turning her back to the doctor, kind of shaming him for just wanting to look in the book, to making sure, shaming him for his uncertainty. That is what she's doing, actually turning her back on him kind of jeopardizing their entire relationship in some way. You know, like, the the value of their relationship putting— kind of threatening it that way, this ultimatum, in some ways. It's so wrong. (laughs) And I don't think this line that she gives also, the words that she said, "'Read it if you have to, but I'll miss the smartest man in the room. Since when has River Song called him the smartest man in the room?' Never. She'll probably be saying the opposite, that he's the goofiest, stupidest man in the room? Who puts the brakes on when the TARDIS is leaving? You know, that kind of thing. Maybe not stupidest, but you get the point. This would never happen. These are not the values of the Doctor and River Song that I know from the television show that I obsess over. I just do not recognize these characters. Nope. They are imposters! It's okay that River Song is trying to boost his confidence, though. I do appreciate the intimacy and general love being transmitted. That is not the right word. Is love transmitted? Whatever's going on between these two characters that are definitely not my River Song and the Doctor, but they're sort of trying to be anyways, I appreciate it. It kind of almost works. Okay, I am taking way too long on this. Moving on... 2.7, almost? Oh, oh, I forgot to talk about one scene, though. They're in some kind of old office of the Doctor in issue 2.6. That is worth taking a look at. It's so great because of all the uh, throwbacks to the fourth Doctor put in here. I think they're trying to sort of uh, advertise, I think, I guess would be the word, for the fourth Doctor comic that is now out. Uh, River Song puts on the fourth doctor's hat and scarf and the doctor offers them a jelly baby and Alice is like what's the best before date on these (laughs) holding her stomach uh doctor don't know late 70s should be fine right oh and then there's this uh page here the fourth doctor has written to himself in red crayon Doctor, don't go here, because you left it here, and it gets you there. Got it? Good. Written like a child. I love it. Yeah, it's quirky and fun and makes you probably nostalgic for the fourth Doctor, if you're familiar with that. I actually am not yet. I just started the third Doctor, though. I'm kind of almost there. Uh, Just making sure that I'm done with 2.6... And I'll give a brief summary of how I liked it or didn't like it. So to summarize, I liked the plot and I liked the feel of it. I loved that River Song is back and I love that we're finally getting to the crooks of what the squire is, whether the doctor actually committed this crime, we're getting rid of the tail that's been chasing them for so many issues now. And as you know, there were a ton of parts that I really didn't like. So, didn't like this issue so much. I'm going to give it a 5 out of 10. Moving on to issue 2.7. If you haven't gotten sick of my voice yet, you can hang on for just a little bit longer. I'll try my very hardest to make the next one shorter. Okay, so, reviewing issue 2.7 now. The artist is... There are two artists, actually. Leandro Casco and Simon Fraser. The writer is Rob Williams, again. Um, and the colorist is Gary Caldwell. The letterer is Richard Starkins. And Crafts Jimmy Betancourt. And this issue is very different than 2.6. Very different indeed. First of all, Riversong. She's still here, which is awesome. Riversong has blonde hair this time, not light brown. Uh, They've, again, chose a coloring for her that really doesn't make sense to me. I associate her, and I think everybody else does, with like a gingery kind of red hair. Yeah, it's blondish, but no, it's not the blonde that they have here. She's Goldilocks. And another aesthetic change to a character that has previously had very little aesthetic added to her is the Squire. She's beautiful in this issue, They've given her these pretty pink lips. They're luscious. They're like this, like, I don't know how to describe this pink. It is a pretty pink, basically. The prettiest pink. And her eyes, very, very, very blue. Not to mention, nobody in this issue has pupils, which is odd. Um, But yeah, the, the squire used to look like this crazy old ragged lady, and now she's gorgeous for some reason. Maybe it's because she kind of saves the day and they figure people that save the day deserve to look pretty. I don't know. That makes no sense. Carrying on. The point of this issue is basically to explore the the prison planet that I mentioned in the previous review. The actual prison planet is... <laughs> the doctor couldn't remember what it was called, obviously, because he erased it from his memory. And I guess he has some parts of it. He goes through a couple of... Possible names, one of them being Skegness, and just by chance I thought it was worth looking up, and Skegness is a real place. The first name that the doctor comes up with for the name of this planet is Skegness. Skegness is a seaside town and civil parish in the East Lindsay district of Lincolnshire, England, located on the, I'm probably not even saying these names right, Lincolnshire coast of the North Sea 43 miles east of blah, blah, blah. Okay, yeah, so it's a real place. I don't know if this is some kind of British joke. Is Skegness not a nice place? Anyways, what the Doctor meant to say was, Shada! And they have this nice illustration of what look like Sith Lords. Hello, Star Wars! And from far away, the prison planet looks like a Death Star. If you ask me that, my friends, is a Death Star. We've got Star Wars references in this issue. If you're interested, check it out. I think we have some Star Wars fans. A running sequence ensues after the realization of the planet name. The security of the planet realizes that the Doctor and his crew are not supposed to be there. And they have to make a run for it. I'll just start summarizing now. I really liked this issue, which is nice to say after the last one. Not only are the characters really well drawn, their expressions are wonderful. The details in them, they they really do portray emotion, and the action poses that they're in are very accurate. They have a lot of movement. You can feel the movement and the emotion. You really can. And apart from what I said about River's hair being the wrong color, overall the coloring is excellent. Like at one point, I'm looking at a picture right now, there's a a little slide of a box, an illustration of a doctor holding a sonic screwdriver, and the light from it is shining up on his face, and it illuminates just him, and the rest of the characters are all in the black shadowy darkness behind him. And like just an example, the coloring is Really superb in this one. I like the artistry so much, even though even if they don't have pupils, uh, which by the way I think is a really cool style move. And I wish I knew who exactly to contribute all of this to. There is one new name on this on the cover of it that they mentioned, Leandro Casco. He's a new name to me. Um, I haven't been paying the best attention, but I think he may be the person to attribute this style of artistry too in this issue. I'm definitely going to keep an eye out for his name from now on. I really liked the artistry in this episode and the expressions, even if they don't look exactly like him. I think what I, you know, in the previous review, I was talking about like an artist has to know where, where to draw the line of what style and what's a completely different person. And they've got it spot on in this one. They really, really do. Even Alice, who has always had sort of an amorphic facial identity. I really like what they did with her in this one. It feels like an Alice and it looks more like a person, you know, like a real person. Even if it is sort of a minimalistic comic style, it somehow comes across. So I think my praise should probably end there before I get too long. So like in the previous issue, there's quite a lot of reference to the past going on. I mentioned in my previous review how the fourth Doctor aspects are used. And now this time we have the first Doctor in this issue making an appearance, as well as the Master. The Master is now part of the picture, um, his voice, and his TARDIS, which is really cool. They go inside the Master's old TARDIS. So basically, while it turns out the computer system of the prison planet is evil and the squire saves the day, they finally get down to the theory of what has been going on, which was, of course, to blame everything on the master framing the doctor. And a little bit of a plot twist occurs. I'm not going to give it away, because you should read the issue. I like this one. I want other people to read it. So I said I'd keep this review shorter than the first one, and I'm going to try and stick to that, and just say right now, I'm going to give this one... Let's give it a 9 out of 10... It really was a good one so that's a huge leap from the issue before this. This issue was great. It really was. All right, ta for now. Be well everybody and thanks for listening.
6: Hello there. Yes, I'm back for more comics reviews. And this month, I'm just looking at issue 3 of year 2 of the 12th Doctor comic. It's time for part 3 of Clara Oswald and the School of Death. So, The usual creators are on hand, Robbie Morrison with the words, Rachel Stott on art, and in the battle of the variant covers this month's winner is Simon Myers, with a lovely black and white and grey tones painting of the Doctor in the famous pose from the sleeve of David Bowie's album Heroes. If you remember from last month we left Clara and two of her students at the mercy of a bunch of sea devils in their underground lair, and despite their best efforts it looks like curtains for the trio until the doctor pops up from the water just in time encased in what looks like a Jules vernished deep sea diver's outfit a quick blast of the sonic screwdriver to screw up the sea devils hearing some running away, a bit of exposition along the way about how the monsters take over the minds and the bodies of the humans and they make their escape to the TARDIS which is handily landed on the seabed I'll come back to this bit in a minute because there's something wrong here Anyway. It's here in the TARDIS that we get to the best part of the issue. There's some lovely banter between Clara and the Doctor about his growing affection for that stuffed swordfish he appropriated last issue, and the Doctor proceeds to give a potted history of his previous encounter with the Sea Devils. This is illustrated in a gorgeous double-page montage. We get dinosaurs, the Delgado Master, the third Doctor, Joe Grant, and the classic-looking Sea Devils, complete with string vests, which really brings home how bland the redesign for this current bunch is. Adding a joke about the eunuch dating controversy. It's great stuff. Does a campaign for a third Doctor miniseries start here, I wonder? Wisely, the Doctor doesn't dwell on his fifth incarnation's encounter with the samurai sea devils from Warriors of the Deep. Let's keep things simple, he says, before giving a mysterious suitcase to Lucy and Jack. I sense something that will come into play in issue four. If warping back to the school, I hear dodge a dodger sea devil hiding in Clara's bathtub although we never find exactly how they do that. And they confront headmistress Miss Mariner, who in time-honoured tradition reveals the plan that Homo Reptilia have for taking control of Earth. A very contemporary tale of oil exploitation and fracking to cause global warning, all announced by monster in disguise Prime Minister Claremont from the main hall of ravenscow School. At this point we get a quick cutaway to Kate Lethbridge-Stewart and the two Osgoods, so this is definitely set post as Zygon 2 part of them. But at least I have to assume it's them from the Tower of London shot, was they look nothing like the actors who play the roles. It's a real shame. So, how to defeat this dasty plan? Well, the Doctor uses the sonic shades to set off the sprinklers of the school. And when the human hybrid sea devils get wet, they reveal their true selves. But, hang on a minute, isn't this a huge flaw in their plan? If they change when they get wet, why have they decided to invade a country when it rains most of the time? let alone start in the north of Scotland, where it's practically a way of life. Plus, five minutes ago, the Doctor used his sonic screwdriver to escape, which, at least in the continuity, we know he lost the Davros. And now he's using the shades. It's a glaring continuity error in the middle of the plot. Still, at least it looks like the shades are broken, as the transformed Miss Mariner clocks the Doctor One across the jaw, and commands the Sea Devils and their technology to arise from the depths. To be concluded. So things are moving quite briskly along this issue. I have no complaints about the Doctor being sidelined this time. He's front and center in the thick of it. And once again he gets all the best lines. Which is as it should be. I do make special mention about his facial expressions. For those comics fans out there who may fondly recall the Justice League of the 1980s, there was an artist called Kevin Maguire who is synonymous with those comics especially because of the huge range of facial expressions he gave to the characters. Well, I think at times that Rachel Stock comes close to matching him with the depictions of the Doctor in this issue. It really adds to the portrayal of the Doctor's character and I think her art has definitely improved after the last three issues. Story-wise, well, it's still a bit of a by-the-numbers monster plot. But maybe something unexpected will happen in the final part and that will really surprise me. I must admit, I am looking forward to finding out. Right, Bit of a short one for me this time. More next month, when hopefully I'll have a review of issue two of the Fourth Doctor miniseries, as well as the concluding part of this storyline. Bye for now.
0: Okay, and here we are about to start on the second half of the Mark Atkinson interview. I hope you've been enjoying the podcast so far. There's been a lot of stuff in it, hasn't there? And without any further ado. Here we go, chatting about Doctor Who. Now, some, some general Doctor Who chit-chat. Okay. The new companion's not been announced yet. No. Um, there was a, a rumour that Radio Times had leaked something, but that turned out to be false. We think we might know who the companion is. She might be that lady off EastEnders, but we still don't know. Um, what would you like to see in this companion or is there something you'd like to see in Companions in general that's been missing?
1: Well, yes, I'd like to see... To be honest, I'd like to see an alien. And by alien, I don't mean someone in prosthetics or strange-looking. I just mean, like, a, a humanoid character from another planet, really. Mm. That The Doctor, a bit like Leela, maybe a bit like Nyssa. Turlough, maybe? Yeah, yeah, just... Yeah, I mean, I, to be honest, I wouldn't mind it being um, a male. I mean, I know it's not going to be... But uh, I wouldn't mind that at all. I think it'd be my partner Tam. She always says that she, I think it'd be great, she'd think it'd be great if there was a, a, like a geeky sort of boy as the companion. Or not might be a my boy, but a teenager, a geeky teenager, mm. a, uh, male, would make a good companion. I agree with her actually. I think that would work really well. Maybe with a female as well. I'd, I would, you know, I think two companions would work well. So maybe but a, a, a likable Adric type. Yeah, 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 but not adric. <laughs> yes, <laughs> not know, Adric. <laughs> no, but not Adric. But but the, the geeky boy from Earth but then a female from another world because I think it'd be really interesting for the Doctor to introduce a companion to our world and so you could see the wonder of our world through their eyes mm. and have that sort of interplay just something different because I think they've tended to repeat the same thing it's always a contemporary woman from our time yeah. who's maybe got a bit of a crush on the Doctor or whatever um, but yeah, it'd be nice to do something different really, wouldn't it?
0: Yeah, and I mean, he's certainly come across people like that. I think of that um, heist episode in Capaldi's first um, season, and yeah. he had the the guy with the augmented uh, bits stuck to his head and, you know, some other people. They, they were, you know, humanoid. They they could have been interesting companions, perhaps.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. No, something just a bit different, really, than just another female that's the same as the last few. I think a different. And I'd, I'd like someone that was less... Less smug as well. To be honest, I think that's just a problem with Stephen Moffat's writing as female characters. I think he tends to make female characters very smug. Like River Song's the epitome of that, really. And Amy had the smugness. Clara had a smugness as well, too, didn't she? That uh, sometimes makes them unlikable. And I just like, I'd like the the character from the Last Christmas episode. You know, they really I can't remember her name, but the
0: a lot of people one... would like her. I think. I was... Yeah, she
1: was great. Because she was she was normal, you know what I mean. She had a normal quality to her, a likable sort of quality that you could, you know, relate to. Really, someone like that. If they're going to go for an Earth companion, I would just like someone that was like that. That was more like normal. That wasn't full of themselves all the time. That was a bit unsure, mm. you know, that sort of thing. I think that would make a nice difference, really.
0: Like uh, Linda with a Y from Eccleston's first season. Yeah, yeah, she was good, wasn't she? Yeah, She she like got that, blown yeah. up. Yeah, um, <laughs> <it> last long. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I agree, you know, and it was a shame about Clara because I I hadn't liked Amy Pond at all.
1: No, I hadn't, no.
0: I, I mean, she had her moments. There were some episodes, and in fact, Amy's Choice or The Girl Who uh, Waited... Um, brilliant. Yeah. And, and they're very yeah. Amy-centric episodes. But on the whole, I didn't like the character at all.
1: Um, no, I didn't. Which,
0: which crueled the Matt Smith era for me. You know, because yeah, she know was what you mean. there for so much of it.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, When Clara came on board, I thought oh wow, at last we're going to get a likeable companion and Matt's going to be amazing and it's all going to take off. And it never quite worked really, I don't think, with Clara. I mean, I know she only got half a season with Matt um but unfortunately that included some of my least favourite stories including the, all, my all time least favourite Nightmare in Silver which I mm. thought she was terrible in that, and I thought the whole story was terrible but that where she was walking around with hands on her hips backing out orders to armies and there's thousands of sidemen she's not even breaking a sweat I just thought that was just <laughs> appalling yeah. because you know it was only a couple of weeks earlier she was in underwater in this submarine with the ice warrior with one ice warrior and she was really scared and I liked that because it was a natural reaction how you would be yeah, exactly. and then suddenly a couple of weeks later she's barking out orders and stuff I oh, I just was yeah, horrendous.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, I think that's born of the, the Doctor Who production team not having a writer's room and not having sort of consistency across the story sometimes. I mean, I guess yeah. Stephen Moffat then tries to mould everything into one cohesive whole, but you can still tell it's written very differently by different people at times.
1: Oh, definitely, definitely, yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, so... Yeah. When we first saw Clara in, in that Dalek at the at the start of that Matt Smith season... And yeah. it was a big surprise because she thought, oh, well, she's going to come in later after Amy goes. Yeah, yeah. I, I liked her now. I thought this is really interesting. But then, no. <laughs>
1: she, Yeah.
0: She never quite yeah, got there for me. And she's the impossible girl. And she does this and she does that. And, oh, too many things.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think that's, I think she, to be honest, I think she outstayed a welcome as well, to be honest, um, by staying for season eight. I think she should at uh, season nine, I think she should have left at the end of season eight, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. Well, she had that perfect way
0: to get out. You know, she's an old woman. She's had a good life. Perfect. Yeah. Okay, let's leave it there. But no, they had to bring it back.
1: And, uh, I know. Think, I think that um, Stephen Moffat thought that the audience loved Clara as much as he obviously did. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that was quite the case. Uh, and I, I know she's got a lot of fans out there. Um, and I didn't dislike her. And nothing against Jella Coleman at all. I think she's a beautiful woman and uh, and a good actress. Agreed. But just, yeah, but the lines she was given sometimes and the characters she was given to play, I just... It just it slightly like, it's set your teeth on edge in ways <laughs> sometimes.
0: All right, moving on. Will Capaldi leave after this coming series? It seemed to be yes. a, a, oh okay. Oh, <laughs> well, stop asking the question. Then. <laughs> no, no, carry on. <laughs> I um, I was going to say it seemed like a foregone conclusion at one time, and then mm. he came out with some comments that made it seem <laughs> like maybe it was more up in the air, or maybe it was just a, a technique to bargain uh, his contract, perhaps, or I I don't know now.
1: I think that, that definitely he won't stay for, for Chibnall because two reasons. One, I think by that time, he'll have done three years. And obviously, with this gap as well, it's even longer, isn't it? So they've done the same as, as Matt Smith, same done the same as pretty much done the same as David Tennant. And I think that both the BBC and Chibnall will want to start again with a fresh doctor. They're going to try and pull back some of the viewers that it seems to have lost a little bit. Are going to maybe more mainstream, and he's going to Chibnall now will want to he'll want to know what he's going to be writing about, and a new doctor will make all the difference to what he writes. Mm. So I think the only reason why why Capaldi has said that oh, he's been asked to stay and he didn't quite know is that he didn't want to come out and say, "Oh I'm, yeah, I'm definitely leaving then," because he didn't want because it's still like nearly two years away, isn't it? Until that happens, and people will suddenly be like, "Oh, who's the new doctor then?" And we're still a year away from the last season with Capaldi. So I just think that's the main reason why it's not happened. I think that the, maybe the BBC and him have got together, said, look, rather than come out and say he's leaving, let's just say this and just keep it hanging for a while. But I can't see him staying at all. I don't think that's going to happen at all.
0: Yeah, because we're, what, we're probably this time next year will be a few episodes into his
1: next series. Yeah, which is, yeah definitely.
0: You know, it'll come up quick, actually, now that I think about it. But yeah, then a whole another year, though, until we see a new Doctor.
1: That's right. So, and you know that be the, and the time will be right then, won't it, to, to have a new Doctor? I think it should it should regenerate every three or you know, four, four years, whatever. I think it, sh- it should happen like that because it gives the show a fresh start. And I think that's what it needs. I'm really, really pleased that Moffat's got another season. I'm pleased that Capaldi's got another season. I'm not his greatest fan, to be honest. i have not totally warm to his Doctor, although I'm a lot more involved with him than I was before Season 9. And I'm pleased he's doing another year, and I'm pleased that that Moffat gets to do another year and go. Hopefully, go out on a high, do a lap of honour. Because um, 'cause has been great overall. I think I've had you know problems with with parts of his his era, but overall, I do prefer the Moffitt era to the Russell Z. Davis era. I'm a Moffitt fan. I've I always have been, even though he lets me down sometimes, mm-hmm. occasionally. But I'm pleased he's, he's going out on a, you know hopefully on a high and gives him gives him a chance to knock it out on the park and Capaldi give him a great send off. Uh, yeah, and, he, and he'll be remembered as a good Doctor and, and then, you know, start again with Chibnall, new Doctor, fresh start, almost like a reboot, almost. Yeah. You know, and try and claw a little bit back of that mainstream audience, I think.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'll tell you something interesting because it, it relates to Prog to Who in, in a way. And that's, you know, you've said in the past that, you know, you're not Capaldi's biggest fan, particularly his first series. Mm. A- and recently I've taken the cellophane off series eight and i've gone back to it with the intention of watching any of the episodes that have a commentary and the and the first one that has a commentary is into the dalek right and i i immediately recoiled from how short his hair was
1: yeah Yeah. and
0: and how spiky he was and that line about she's my carer so i don't have to care and I, i was like oh i don't think i like this no, know, and, no. and and at the time I was just so happy that Peter Capaldi was the doctor and Malcolm Malcolm Tucker was going to be the doctor and you know I, I think I might have in my own head glossed over a lot of things. And now that I see that I'm like, oh, I'm not sure I like this at all, you know. Yeah. Um and then the next episode with the commentary was Robot of Sherwood and in it he's he's being an ass and I actually said yeah. this on on Facebook he's he's being an ass as well, but because it's a funny script, he's being an ass in a funny way.
1: Yeah, And yeah, that yeah. was
0: more palatable, you know, like where he's pulling out bits of their hair and wanting to do little DNA tests on the Merry Man and things like this. <laughs> and just being like, oh, this can't be real. It's too sunny. Duh, you're going to be dead in six months, you know. Uh, yeah. You know, I found that really funny. And so yeah. it's not that I dislike Capaldi. I think Capaldi is fantastic. And there are still episodes in that first series I like. But I can now see when I couldn't see back in series 8 where you're coming from about him being spiky and maybe a bit non
1: doctory because Very. I I thought oh, ooh, ooh.
0: <laughs> I don't remember feeling yeah. like this when I first saw that
1: no no I mean I, I did it to, it just took me I was worried about it before uh, before it started because I'd heard he was going to be a darker doctor and I thought well you've still got to have the doctor in there mm. and I think Into the Dalek is probably the worst example or the best example if you like of that that sort of Harshness—he's almost like nothing, like the Doctor, totally in that one. Um, yeah, it's so cold, and it—it just—I don't know. It's—I think they went too far that way, and I think—and it, it bears out in the viewing figures as well that a lot of people just give up and didn't come back for season nine because they just didn't take to to Capaldi. I know that a lot of fans absolutely love him, and I know that he, he, he people really seem to love him. But then, a lot a lot of people that I've spoken to out in the real world, out of non. You know, n- that are non-fans. Mm. They've all stopped watching. Just say, oh, he's rubbish. The Doctor. I just you know, and I c- and you can see why. That I can see totally why that would be the case. I mean, I stuck with it obviously because I'm a huge Doctor fan and I love it no matter what. Yeah, but he was almost like nothing like the Doctor in a lot of the the stories. I I think anyway. And. And Into the Dalek was probably the worst one for that as well because, yeah, it's just too too spiky. I think they went too much that way. I think he's pulled it back in Season 9 and you get a lot more doctorish in Season 9 apart from the playing of the guitar. But, uh, <laughs> but yes, <laughs> I should like that really, shouldn't I? But I just detested it. I, I,
6: detested
0: uh, I it. know, I've seen many comments from you about it. <laughs>
1: Oh dear! Yes, it upset me greatly. That scene when he comes on in uh, the first one, the Dalek one, when he comes on riding a tank and playing guitar—that was the one of the worst scenes I've ever seen in my life. I literally <laughs> had my head in my hands. I just couldn't believe it. I thought, "This is terrible."
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, um, J.R. Southall on a recent Blue Box was riffing, and he came up with this idea on the spot that the Capaldi doctor is saying he's going to die at, at the start of that episode. And he's acting like a buffoon. <laughs> is, it's because he's trying to attract the Time Lord's attention, perhaps, that he is about to die and go into the um, confession dial. Yeah. And so, <laughs> J.R. came up with this theory, and I, I don't know how you might feel about this, it's just popped into my head now as well, that maybe he's he's acting like that just to get attention, just to draw the Time Lord's attention onto him.
1: Well, it, yeah, well, it worked, <laughs> in a way. But, uh... No, yeah, I mean, I think even Matt Smith, I, I think, would have struggled to pull that scene off. I think he'd have probably been able to do it a little bit better, mm. even though he probably can't play guitar and Capaldi plays guitar. But I, I, don't know, it, it just, I don't know, it just didn't work for me at all. I didn't mind the moments when he saw him, like, noodling melancholy, you know, in the TARDIS. I didn't mind that at all. That was, like, the, the second Doctor playing his recorder, just thoughtfully.
0: Or in the cafe uh, or the canteen at the end, yeah.
1: Yeah, I didn't mind that, really, because it was much more subtle and it was just an expression of of emotion. Whereas just doing it like, you know, he's having a midlife crisis and stuff, I don't know, it just didn't work for me at all. I I really disliked that first episode. That was my least favourite of season nine, actually, was the opener, Magician's Apprentice. I just just didn't do it for me at all. I was so disappointed in it.
0: Yeah, I've got to say, I wasn't into the costume, you know, with the hoodie and... No, uh, no.
1: What's going on? You know? Yeah, exactly. But by the end of the season, many he times he gets the velvet jacket and everything and he's suddenly there you go, it's like in Hell Bent, it was the pretty much the moment I I thought, Wow, there you go, he's the doctor, that's it. He's got it there. Yeah. And um under the under the lake, that's the first one into of the two parts. Yeah, Under the Lake mm-hmm. was another episode where I, I suddenly thought, Wow, there you go, he's, he was great as the doctor in that. Yeah. Um he just he just clicked and uh, I was waiting for that moment to happen and for me because I know that a lot of people loved him straight away but for me it took till then for for me to sort of go oh, okay there you go I'm I'm sort of on board really now Yeah,
0: well it does bode well for the third series you know if he keeps that velvet jacket he keeps his hair big and uh, he's mm. got a new companion who's not going to be smug and not going to be the girl who knows everything and so on and, yeah. and then you've got a guy show running it who has nothing to lose because he's told all these stories this is just a victory lap, as we were saying earlier. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it, it bodes very well for his third series, actually.
1: Yeah, definitely. No, I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait. You know, and it's it's nice that that Moffat's got another year as well to you know just see see what he does with it. Really, um, I'm excited about it. Uh, I'm. I think if the Moffat era had ended with Wedding the River Song, I think I'd be really disappointed mm. to be uh, to be honest. And Hell Bent, I was a little bit disappointed. Hell because it all became about Clara again. Yeah, and um, yeah, and it was like a cop out. Oh, she's alive, yeah. Just well, you just expected it, really. Even though on, in retrospect it wasn't terrible, but it was just a bit of a disappointment, really, because I thought Moffat had you know grander idea in place for Gallifrey than 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 that, really. Mm. So I'm, yeah, I'm hoping he gets a chance to to finish on a high because he's an amazing writer, and I think he will be able missed, really. I'm looking forward to see what Chris Chibnall does with it.
0: Yeah, look, I'm wondering if in this final series he's got something to do with Rassilon up his sleeve. Because ha- how do he get rid of Rassilon that easily?
1: Oh, I don't know. That was just <laughs> mad money. Just yeah, the, I didn't like all that. That um, you know when he wasn't wouldn't even speak to them and all that sort of stuff. It's just it's just like over the top dramatic for you know. It just didn't make much sense really, did it? No, yeah. no. <laughs> it looked lovely though. Great, great <laughs> direction. It looked lovely.
0: Alright, we've, we've touched on this briefly, but you're, you're looking forward to the Chibnall era though?
1: Oh, definitely, yeah, I'm open minded about it. I'm, you know, I'm. Uh, I mean, his, his tortured episodes, <laughs> I mean, Cyberwoman and things like that were just. Pretty much low points of... I mean, I dislike to talk to him anyway, to be honest. So I can't really judge him on that. And the episodes that he's done for Dot Who, none of them have stood out as being amazing to me, but none of them have been terrible either. I think I actually really enjoyed The Power of Three, apart from maybe the rush conclusion. That was probably my favourite of season 7A. Um, Dinosaurs on the spaceship was, was all right. It wasn't too bad. Um, but it'd be interesting to see what he does with it now that he's he's got a free reign to do with what he likes he's not you know got a shopping list from a showrunner to tell him the type of store it's going to be he's gonna have free reign so uh, he's obviously a great writer i mean Broadchurch church is fantastic and yeah so yeah i think i think it's i think exciting because i want i need to change now i think as i said i'm grateful that we get another moffat and capaldi year, but it, then it definitely needs a change mm. and i'm excited about to see where he where he takes it really See if he gets the kids back on board again. I don't know.
0: Yeah, you're right about The Power of Three. I remember the first time I watched it, and it's the only time I've watched it, thinking, this is really good, this is really interesting. And then the ending was so disappointing, it just killed the whole thing for me, and I've never gone back and watched it again.
1: Yeah, it was a disappointing and It was all building up to to nothing, really, in in a lot of ways. But I thought the interplay was good, some good, good dialogue. It was funny. Yeah, I enjoyed it overall, that one. So, I'm excited. I'm excited to see what he brings.
0: Yeah. And speaking of those Torchwood episodes, I mean, people, (laughs) you know, including yourself, mentioned Cyberwoman. He did also write Countryside, which was genuinely crap-your-pants scary. Um, Yeah. uh, And probably my favourite Torchwood episode out of the regular... Uh, seasons of Torchwood. Yeah. I mean, I yeah, think. Yeah, that. I was going to say, I think Children of Earth, the miniseries, is still my high point. But in, in just the first two series, I think Countryside's probably one of my favourites.
1: Yeah. I mean, I must admit, I've only ever watched Torchwood seasons, well, one to four. I've only ever watched them once right. on the original broadcast. I did record them. I've got them on disc and everything. Um, but I've just never gone back to them because it just. It just didn't do it for me at all. But I think Countryside. I remember that being being a good episode, actually. So I understand what you're saying there. We're gonna. I think we're gonna in the future on Proctor Hill. We're gonna rewatch Children of Earth. I think and doing a review of that as a um, you know to give our thoughts on Torchwood. <laughs> but uh, so, but yeah, I think I like that one as well. The Countryside. I think it was a good one.
0: Yeah, no, and very worthwhile watching Children of Earth. Just just awesome. Television. Definitely. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I remember enjoying that one definitely. So.
0: All right, uh, an an easy one to finish. Okay. How many years do you think Doctor Who's got left in the tank?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think, to be honest, that Doctor Who will keep going as long as there's humans to enjoy it, to be honest. I think that's the way that I would describe that. I I can't see it ever ending. Okay. I think that the, the potential of it... The fan base, everything of it, it's a show that, as we know, can be anything, its it's got s- limitless stories, literally, because it can be anywhere in time and space. It can go, that's why it's lasted so long, that's why there's all these offshoots, all these audio dramas, all these books of different stories, mm. because it's in- 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 inextinguishable, I would say, the whole story potential... Um, I think it'll just keep going, to be honest. I can't really see it stopping. Maybe it might stop for a couple of years to have another break in maybe five or six years' time or whatever for a couple of years, but... I don't know. I think maybe we'll try a movie as well at some point. But I, I think the whole there's no way it'll ever die. Let's put it that way, mm. unless everyone gets wiped out in uh, whatever. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'll
0: dial the question back a bit. Even they've already sort of really answered this. Uh, in terms of being a TV series, I, I agree. There'll always be people pumping out some novels somewhere or something. But mm. in terms of the TV series, you're thinking maybe another five or six years, perhaps before a break
1: well maybe yeah. and, and even then I don't think it'll be a break for long I mean we're having a break now aren't we over a year really and a lot of, well we are having a break for a year mm. so I think that could possibly happen again in a, in maybe you know four or five years time when Chidwell's had enough maybe just a little bit I don't know I don't know what's going to happen but I, I, I can't see it ever being let go as a TV show I think it'll just carry on and on because you know there's a, so many fans out there, isn't there and it makes so much money why would you want to stop it imagine the uproar do, i mean you know this, do you think at some point the bbc might not be able to fund it and
0: it becomes a netflix slash bbc co-production or something
1: well possibly uh, possibly as, and as long as the quality is there and i'm sure it will be i mean the dead Evil stuff's been amazing hasn't it? oh yeah um yeah uh, oh, just loving that um so yeah i'm that's sh- uh, a possible future for it i suppose I, uh, yeah i think it'll always come to carry on it's a it's a a franchise literally a multi-million pound franchise and anyone that that came along and wanted to stop it would be crazy (laughs) wouldn't they I mean just the figures themselves stand for themselves it's funny I was just reading the complete history you know about Rose the making of Rose the other day and it was on about the moment when they were like about two weeks away from starting production and there was a new BBC general uh, came on board or whatever it, it was and he actually came up to me he didn't like Doctor and he said can we stop this down I don't want it to carry on Wow! And luckily, yeah, and luckily um, Russell T and, and Julie Gardner said, "No, it's already we're building sets. It's already happening. We can't stop it now." And that's how close it came. Just one guy's opinion, yeah. and he nearly stopped this this thing that's come back and made millions for the BBC. And that pretty much sums up Doctor Who, doesn't it? In relation to the BBC, they've always had this thing that makes more money than it than it costs to make, and yet they sort of sometimes treat it just on the, on the whim of one person, whether it be Michael Grade or this guy that came in or Jonathan Powell or whatever, mm. that can just, because they don't personally like it, they could take it off, which is just crazy. It is. So, yeah, apparently it came close to getting stopped, but luckily it didn't, did it? Unbelievable. <laughs>
0: All right, then. Mark Atkinson, thank you very much for being with us today.
1: You're welcome, Rob. It's been my pleasure.
0: And I've always wanted to say this um, <laughs> with regards to Eternal. Check it out. Oh, I've been working you. on that.
1: Hey, <laughs> I can tell. Check it out. There we go. Check it out. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you.
2: <laughs>
0: Well, here we are at the end of the fourth Doctor Who show. My thanks, as always, to the team of Ian and Bob and Jim and Lex and our newcomer Matt and, of course, Kevin and also to our guests Mark Atkinson and... Brendan Jones. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Normally I'd chat about something here at the end, but I have something uh, a bit different, a bit special. You might recall last episode we had all those crazy audios from the AM Audio Media guys. Well, M.A. Tamburo from AM Audio Media was recently at a convention and spoke to some people who run a Doctor Who club up in Canada. So this is only a brief bit of audio, but I thought it just might be a bit of fun. My thanks to M.A. Tamburo for sending it through to us to play on the show. And without any further ado, here's a snapshot of uh, organized Doctor Who fandom in Canada. I'll see you next month on The Doctor Who Show.
11: So I'm here with Cindy. She's a member of the Doctor Who Society. And uh, tell us a little bit about your club and what you guys do.
8: Uh, The Dr. Who Society is a social club. It's a social network for Whovians. Uh, In 2011, we launched the club. Uh, It came out of Fan Expo that year, where we saw that there were clubs for the 501st, Steampunk, Ghostbusters, but there was nothing for Whovians. And there were so many Whovians that year, and there was no group supporting them. And so we decided we were going to be the ones to fill that need. The club itself is, uh, we have monthly events, um, anything from pub nights to bowling, uh, to cosplay, skates. Um, Right now we're very active in Ottawa as well as in Toronto, trying to branch out to different areas as, uh, as possible.
11: So do you guys have, like, local chapters? I know back in the day there used to be local chapters of different clubs. Is it sort of the same setup with you guys? or?
8: Yeah, that's what we've been trying to do. Um, we have Toronto and Ottawa are our most active. Um, we've been trying to branch out to... there. There is a, a London group that's not officially under our banner, but they uh, may be in the future, a Montreal group as well. Uh, we tried to branch out to Hamilton, and there may be uh, another branch coming, Durham east so toronto east um so yeah it's it's we need people who are willing to help and and come out because uh you know event is is for the people and we need the people to be there yes
11: and you guys bring all kinds of fun props with you i see when you come out to these events so we have daleks from they're from a certain building group is that right
8: uh the daleks are uh from a group that is part of our group. They're a subsection. The uh, Canadian Dalek Empire. Uh, when you're at our events, you can see them by the red and white shirts or by the Daleks themselves. Um, and then we have usually have the Doctor Who side, uh, which uh, we have cosplay doctors. We have a, a mini TARDIS this year from Flatline episode, uh, as well as the Gallifrey No More picture from the 50th anniversary episode. So th- it's basically for people to come um <laughs> get pictures, pose with our cosplayers, and we accept donations for Sick Kids Foundation uh, as our charity of choice.
11: Excellent. Excellent. So uh, I think your club too is very important for this year because we're going to be a little bit wholess.
8: Capaldi, Peter Capaldi will be staying around at least for one more year. I personally hope he'll stay for more. Um... We'll be getting a new companion, uh, so who knows who that will be? A lot of people are thinking it will be Osgood, but Osgood is uh, from an earlier episode. Now she she is a Zygon as well as her human counterpart. So uh, Capaldi's doctor had alluded to in one episode that um, you know she should think about. Uh, adventures in space and time but now she's very important to that Saigon role um, so who it will be we don't know be- I think it would be interesting to see him with a male companion as a different dynamic because we've had female companions for so long now
11: Would you advocate bringing Turlo back?
8: I don't know about that
11: Okay, alright <laughs> Now, Where where can people find out more information uh, about your group and how to get involved?
8: Uh, we are at drwhosociety.com We're also on Twitter at DRWhoSociety, and we're also on Facebook with a page and a group. The group is the more active, uh, where you can post uh, memes, thoughts. Uh, When episodes are airing, we have a spoiler zone, so you're not allowed to post about the episode to the main group. You have to go to the spoiler zone. Um, And uh, just to note, though, also, we do not allow the posting of... Um, locations to find episodes via streaming sites Um, we ask that you go and watch off space or off crave tv well
11: there will be links to this awesome interview right (laughs) yes people will be listening to right now great on your website
8: that would be good yeah why me wibbly wobbly
0: you've been listening to the doctor who show the podcast where too much doctor who is barely enough Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights for the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.